Hi, everybody, and welcome to Totally Tintin. I'm Ian Boothby. And I'm David Dedrick. And today we're going to be talking about King Autocars. Please make sure I get this right. King Autocars Scepter. Am I getting that right? I assume so, since n- none of us have heard it pronounced. Let's just say you're right. Okay. Well, it that's has, how I read it. They have made this into a little animated short. They've done, or mm-hmm. you know, that Tintin uh, animated series. Uh, this was one of the first ones they did, I think. The Nelvana. Yes. One, yeah. And actually, it was produced as a cartoon in 1956 as well. It was semi-animated. How does that work? I oh, don't... is this is this like those Marvel uh, comics they did on TV in the 60s, I don't where know. Captain America would just do nothing except move one arm, yeah, probably. and then like a shield would go and hit yeah. another person that wasn't moving at all. Yeah, they probably just took the draw- drawings and then you know copied them yeah. in some way, and then just had parts of them moving, and then you know sort of, and then it had voices on it and that it's, was it's, pretty good it's about one step uh away from just hold up the comic to a camera and <laughs> shake it a little bit yeah just go, oh, they're moving and they're, they're coming closer and now they're yeah. farther away yeah uh if you're listening to this for the very first time uh you could listen to the other ones first if you want we'll wait no anyway uh if you're listening to this for the first time here's the concept behind this i have never i'm uh, i i write comics for a living but i have never read uh tintin before this podcast and david on the other hand i'm a big fan of uh tintin and you've been reading it since you were... Since I was probably grade eight. Okay. I first discovered Tintin at the Library. And you... Oh, I don't know that uh, that, uh, episode. that book. Yeah, Tintin at the Library. It's yes, just him it's a, quietly reading. It's a quieter one. Yeah, it's more of a sedate adventure. Now, if it was Tintin at the Library, he would find a book no one has ever seen before, mm-hmm. open it up, there'd be a map inside, and they'd never mind that he brought a dog to the library. No. Because Snowy is welcome anywhere <laughs> in the world of Tintin. Yes. Uh, that's one thing about the Tintin universe. Very dog-friendly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so... Uh, we are now going uh, every every uh, volume of Tintin. We're going uh, through uh, with my uh, first timer perspective and Dave's uh, longtime fan perspective. Sure. Dave's also reading them sometimes in French because uh, yeah. he's cocky yes, that way. Right. I just yeah, I'm taking a chance. <laughs> sure. So um, now we usually start off with uh, a little bit of context where things are with Hergé and whatnot. But you've said to me beforehand that there's not a lot of context to this. No, I think uh, we can, you can I think you we can, can kind of roll it into the into the book as we go. All right. Well, what surprised me was afterwards finding out that this was a political satire, much like the last well, that's one. That's mean that we can roll into the book as we go. Okay. All right. But uh, I'm I'm going to start with my context, okay. which was uh, like last the last uh, one we we uh, went over was the Black Island. Black Island, yeah. And I didn't realize that was a political satire. I wouldn't call it political satire. I think it's more just a straight adventure yarn. Okay, what am More I than, thinking? We, I think was, you're thinking the Broken Ear. Broken Ear, that is correct. Yeah. yeah, the Blue Lotus and the Broken Ear would be, I would, you know, both of them have political satire. The one talking about the, the oh, I can't remember the name of it, but the incident in Manchuria where the railroad was blown up right. by the Japanese. They blame Chinese bandits and then they That's use an correct. excuse yes. to, and then we have the Grand uh, Chaco War mm-hmm. in, in the Broken Ear, which becomes a Grand Chapo War in, in Tintin, but... It's basically it was a real war between Bolivia and Venezuela, that, right? You know, and so with this one uh, again, like in those, it was obvious there was some sort of satire, and much like I, when I read Animal Farm, uh, I was going, uh, well, I know this is a parody of something, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure what it is, and you have to read it afterwards and go, oh, that's who sure. that is. Sure. Uh, but this one, I wasn't. I didn't. I thought it was just a straight out adventure story. Then afterwards, read, oh, this was, and then certain things become clear. Well, I guess you know if. To put it, I guess we can put that into context. In that, Hergé, I mean, he started this in. Uh, was, this is another one that was written for Le Petit Vantien. Yeah, this is good to say when they all came and out. So, where they originally uh, and so, it started August fourth, nineteen thirty-eight, mm-hmm. and he finished it August tenth, nineteen thirty-nine. 
So to give you a sense of when he finished it, three weeks later, September the 1st, Germany attacked Poland. Right. So that was the beginning, the official beginning of World War II. I mean, before that, it was kind of already in, on, on its way to happening. You know, there, Germany was rearming. Uh, and this book is commenting on, on Anschluss, the, the takeover of Austria by, by Germany. But it could also be commenting on the attack on the Sudetenland in Czechoslovakia or on Italy's attack on Albania mm-hmm. at, during the same period. So while this book was being published, I mean, so for Austria, like that attack happened, so I think it was in, in Mar- yeah, March. So in March 12th, 1938, um, what happened in Austria was, and it was kind of a sneaky thing. It was kind of the same as this. So what happened was, Anschluss was a kind of a concept that was already out there. Like people had talked about Austria and Germany reuniting. And now the problem was, is that it was forbidden for them to reunite by the Treaty of Versailles and the Treaty of Saint-Germain, which were two treaties signed after World War, World War I. And those treaties were designed to try to keep Germany from becoming a military power again. And so one of the ways to do that was to separate it from its power bases and to keep it from getting too large. So areas like the Saar region, which is very industrialized, was they that was taken away from them. The Their kind of empire, the austro Germany, you know, empire was taken away from them. And parts of Poland and Czechoslovakia were kind of returned in a way yeah. back to those countries, uh, even though the part of Czechoslovakia, the Sudetenland, was mostly German-speaking people. So now for Anschluss, so like I say, this was in the air. Now, in like in Germany, it was, Germany wasn't the only country to have a, a National Socialist Party. There was one in England. There was one in the Netherlands. There was one in Belgium. The Rex Party, as we've talked about Leah and de Grel before. Uh, and then there was one in, in Austria as well. And so they were, you know, with support from the Germans, they were kind of making a big fuss about this idea of having Anschluss. And, and so finally, the, uh, pre, the kind of the, um, what would you call him? The chancellor, this guy named Kurt Schlusnig, decided, I'm going to have a referendum. And we're going to end this once and for all. Because mm-hmm. he just assumed that there's no way the population was want, going to want to join Germany, that they would want to remain an independent country. Mm. Which was probably true. Mm-hmm. The only thing was, is that before the referendum happened, there was a coup d'etat by the Austrian Nazi party. So they took over several key parts of the country, the telephone, the army. You know, So you can basically, um, you know, at that time, because, you know, Communication was different then, and, and transportation was different then. It was a lot slower to do things. So you could take over, you know, just key parts of the country and take control of it. You know, police force, army, communications, you know, block roads, you're done. Yeah. You know, you have control. And so as soon as they did that, the Germans, like the Wehrmacht was right at the border. They just came flooding into the country, basically took it over. Then they held a referendum. Uh, which apparently 97.6% of the population voted voted in favor of the Germans being in mm. Austria. Uh, mm. There's no true count of what was, that, that's just what the Germans said. Mm. So, yeah. So uh, that's cocky. That's cocky to make it that, <laughs> and not even yeah. Okay. So that happened in March 12. So you know, I could see that you know just in that time, Erge is thinking about this, and you know, and so he's writing a book that's a commentary on not only that that what happened but what was happening i mean it was still happening so uh, march of 39 so you know while the series is going that's when uh germany annexed the city and land uh and then in april of 39 that's when italy 
uh, invaded Albania and the king was, was uh, exiled, King Zog. The great name's King Zog. <laughs> and then, yeah, like I say, just three weeks af after the book was completed, Germany rolled into Poland. And that was the kind of the straw that broke the camel's back, partly because uh, Harold Macmillan, the kind of milquetoast prime minister of England, had stepped down and Churchill, who was much more belligerent, became the prime minister. And so Poland, they had kind of made their 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 stand on Poland. And when Poland was invaded, that was the beginning of war. So everyone declared war on Germany on September 1st. Well, maybe September 2nd. You know, uh, you said there was no context for this one, really. That was some good context. I'm sorry, because I thought we could maybe talk about it while we are doing this And story, you know but... what? We we'll probably will as we go. But <laughs> uh, but nice. nice. I, I always like hearing when... Uh, the book was written. Yeah. You know, I like at least yeah. that much off well, the Because then you know what he's thinking of. I mean, he's living in Belgium, a very small country that already had been attacked by the Germans. Mm -hmm. While he was a lot, like when he was a kid, Germany, or yeah, Germany yep. were, were, were the occupying forces in Belgium. Like for whatever, five years or however long the World War One lasted, pretty much that's how long the Germans were in Belgium until they were forced out by the British. And so he already experienced that. And so he knew what, he kind of knew what it was. He didn't, no one knew what the Nazis were, though. Everyone knew what the Germans were, but no one knew what, what the Nazis were capable of. So what people were, were basing their, their kind of predictive behavior on, like, you know, oh, if we do this, they'll do that, was, was always almost wrong. Right. Like, because what the Nazis wanted was something that no one could understand. And so, you know, even when the war started, Hergé, you know, his behavior, which now seems kind of erratic or strangely strange decisions, you know, when you look at it in the light of they didn't know what the heck was going on, it makes more sense, you know, like, so, but we'll see, we'll, we'll talk about that as we come along. It's more, it's right. more context for later books. Cool. All right. So, uh, we're going to go page by page, uh, in the book as we usually do. So this is a spoiler podcast. If you haven't read the book already, and you don't want uh, sure. to know the plot, uh, then a good thing to do right now is go get the book and read it and then come back to us. Or if you want to be spoiled, that's fine. It's your life. However you want to live it. <laughs> Maybe you like being spoiled, and then you go and read the book. Some people like to do that. One thing before we get going on the book. We sure had a thing. question from a listener. All right. And uh, Simon asked, Simon Curran asked about, he was curious about cliffhangers, like how the cliffhangers worked in, because he says, I know, I understand like there was two pages for Le Petit Vantiem. And so after two pages, you would have your cliffhanger. Right. These were all reprinted from that newspaper, right? These were not reprints necessarily. They were they're somewhat reprinted. They're basically reconfigured. So okay. they would, they would um, take pages, take the original art and cut it up mm -hmm. and re reformat it on, on a big piece of sometimes paper. Sometimes redraw it. And sometimes redraw it or sometimes just add to the drawing. So if it needed to be a bit longer, they would just cut out part of it and then redraw like a corner of the drawing to make right. it a bit longer to fit the new format. And if you want to see how some of that was done, uh, Dave puts up show notes on our website, yeah. sneakydragon.com. So you can yeah. go check those out. There is, there is some of that that's, that's, uh, you can see how they worked. But, um, so yeah, cause at this point, um, when he did the color, he did with E.P. Jacobs. And we'll talk about that as well. So now when, uh, in Le Petit Ventium, it was basically a six grid format per page. So, you know, you'd have two, two, and two, 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 and two, and then the last one would have the, you know, the cliffhanger or the little kind of thing that's going to keep you interested right. in what's going to happen next week. Now, for these ones, it's a bit more confusing because, like, for instance, with King Autocar Scepter, when you open it, well, the first pat, the first row is gone, the first tier is gone, mm -hmm. and replaced by the title of the book. So, so you're not sure where, where is the, where is the, uh, 
the cliffhanger in, on that page then? Well, it's probably not on that page. It's probably on the next page where he gives the briefcase back to the professor. And, and so that was considered kind of the start of the next... Uh, or it could have been this, the little sting at the end where you see people are listening in on Tintin and the professor. Right. And that would have been a good place to stop. So then you'd be thinking, oh, what's going to come up next? Because they had to reformat these books, it was harder to get the immediately get the um, the uh, the uh, cliffhanger per page. So, for instance, so if you go to um, page, let's go to page seven. Now, on this page, we're just going to jump ahead a little bit in the story. On this page, uh, Tintin is visited by a mysterious uh, visitor, and when he opens the door, the man falls inside onto the floor. So you can see now that's a perfect cliffhanger ending. Right. So you can see that in this part of the story, we've caught up back up to the to the story because basically one page of the four tier uh this four-tier format is two pages of the Le Petit Vingtième. Right. So your bottom so your yeah. bottom panel uh bottom right panel would be your cliffhanger panel. As much as he could. Where he yeah. couldn't where he couldn't fit it in, he he didn't bother. Yeah, like sometimes he, it's sometimes a joke, it, sometimes it's something, yeah. but it's it's a little bit of a goose at the end. He tried yeah, he tried as much as possible. And Tintin went through various formats. So we're talking about Le Petit Vingtième. When it became a newspaper strip, it was different again. And late, later when he started Tintin magazine it was different again. So it just depended what format we're talking about. But at this point, uh, Le Petit Vantiem, it's basically, the way to think about it is two pages of Le Petit Vantiem equals one page of the color uh, reformats. Right. And so you can kind of see, but once again, it's not always perfect. You no. kind of have to look at the page and figure out, um, you know, where Tintin might have, or where Hergé might have, might have stopped it. So when I was looking at it, I was thinking, there's a restaurant sequence where where Tintin goes in and then uh, he can't find Snowy. And then the guy tells him that he's brought him uh, the dog. He's brought him dog. Fed him dog. Yeah. And so that was probably the cliffhanger. Because then you're like, what? Like, what happened to Snowy? You he know? got eaten. Yeah. That's you the end of Snowy. You don't know till the next week. But that's in the middle of the page. So it just depended, like, where they could fit it in as, as they went. So anyway. Okay. So our advice is to go back in time and pick up all the issues of Le Petit uh, Ventiam that you can, and then you'll know. Yeah. This was published as, it was called Tintin and Seldavia. Uh, Seldavia, okay. In the now, original. Now Seldavia is a made-up country? Yes. Okay. Same with the last, the last issue had made-up country as well. You're thinking of the Broken Year, which was not the last issue. Wasn't it? The well, issue Scot- was, yeah, Scotland isn't made up. No, You're absolutely England correct. Is a, Great Britain is a true place. Oh, boy. <laughs> but when he's doing political, it seems like when he started to do political commentary he wanted to disguise it a little bit yeah it, you know the satire so it wasn't just so obvious and more universal you can do more then yeah yeah and so when he's talking about the gran chaco war he changed the name of it he changed the name of the countries you know so we had nuevo rico and san theodorus i think it was mm-hmm. and then for in this case we have the made-up country of soldavia and borduria but i mean when you look at well, we can talk about it. As yeah, we go. again, the earlier issues seem like I a keep tra- feeling like we're jumping ahead. That's all right. We can jump ahead. We can do whatever we want. It's our podcast. No one's paying us. Um, it, the early issues seem like a travelogue. Yes, and so you'd get to see a little bit of what you know. They're this more of a gagalogue. Sure thing, but it but, but based on you know real places, mm-hmm. and then you know then you get into make 'em ups. Yeah, and you can have a little bit more fun, and people they're, can be a bit crazier. They're, they're make 'em ups, but they're they're true. You know what I mean? So they're not. Yeah, they're all based on. Yeah, they're not cloud cuckoo land. They're a real. They're <laughs> they're kind of a, a fantasy place, but have elements of reality that. You okay, know. I don't want you to disc cloud cuckoo land anymore. Okay, so let's just move on. <laughs> By the way, Tintin should have some Lego. I'm surprised he hasn't, and he should. Let me just put there that out there. Has, there, may have, there probably has been some Lego. Has there? We'll take a look later. I don't know. All right, let, join me, won't you, on page one. 
Uh, I'm there now. All right, sounds good. Um, so we're going to start off with uh, Tintin. Now, uh, th- this is the first issue where Tintin is not a boy reporter. This one, there's yes. no reference to this him. Was, and actually, this was the the book where that was taken off the cover as well. There's okay. no reference in the Le Petit Vatiem, the Casterman first black and white version. There's no reference to him as a reporter. And when when you were saying that to me, the the first couple of panels look like, well, Tintin's unemployed and he's just bumming around in the park reading a book. Yeah. He's got nothing to do with his day. It looks very pleasant, but mm-hmm. it's clearly this guy is unemployed. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Snowy's chasing some birds, being very dog-like. Uh, Snowy is quite dog-like in this one. Very dog-like. He's not now yeah. the kind of old man complaining about everything. No. Uh, he's he's very much a dog. So Tintin uh, goes, sits down with his book, notices a mysterious package, uh, or you know, on the uh, on the park bench, and away we go. Yes. Never one to leave a package unopened. Tintin no. opens it. <laughs> well, he. First, he says, perhaps I should open. He, f- he's, he realizes that he probably shouldn't be peeping inside, but he does. And he finds that it belongs to Hector Alembic. 24 Flyaway wrote, in the original black and white version, the professor's name was Nestor Alembic. Hmm. But when they redid this one in 47, uh, they changed it to he- Hector because they'd already introduced Nestor, the valet or butler, Mar- uh, Captain Haddock's butler at Marlin Spike. Hmm. So they didn't want to... They did, didn't want to have a repeated name like that, so they changed it. Okay. Or Erge didn't want it. So uh, it. he goes, he meets, uh, you know, the the woman who runs the house. You know, there's always a woman who runs the house. And she's usually... Always a landlady, yeah. She's always sweeping. They're always cleaning. <laughs> yes. And they always let you right up. They will not <laughs> ask, uh, knock on the door and see if it's okay to let you up. Yeah. Up you go, which is why a lot of these guys end up getting kidnapped. Because the landlady at the front door, not good at the security. Uh, so up goes Tintin, uh, knocking on the door. I actually like, in, on page one, the very final panel, he's got a little sculpture uh, on his bookshelf, and it looks like the sculpture is interested in who's knocking on the door. He's turning <laughs> his head. Yes. Now, uh, on the next page, it looks like we've got ourselves another absent-minded professor type, not yeah. really looking up. Hergé not... was fascinated by that, uh, because a lot of the people that he introduced in his books were based on people that he knew. You know, for instance, the Thompsons were based partly on his his father and his uncle, who were identical twins. Oh, who was wore, that right? Yes, I've talked about it before. But they, I never listened to the show. <laughs> and they wore bowler hats and carried canes. They, they were, and they liked to dress alike. Okay. They made a point of dressing alike. They worked together. Did they, they fall downstairs a lot together? I, maybe they did. Okay. And, uh, and then um, there was a absent-minded professor kind of a character that lived in his neighborhood. And so he loved to try to... He kept trying to find this sort of perfect character. So he... Of the of that absent-minded professor, mm-hmm. which you'll finally hit on with Professor Calculus, okay, who he like obviously liked so much that he became a regular member of the cast. Mm-hmm. These other ones, you know, Professor uh, Sarcophagus and and Alembic and and others with their rather elaborate beards seem to come and go. But uh, <laughs> well, an absent-minded professor is a great character to lead you on your way. Mm-hmm. You know, because he's going to do something wrong. You're going to have to fix that mistake, and he's also probably clever enough to make something interesting. So yeah. here we go. So uh, he uh, he he. Uh, meets uh, Tintin is happy to see his briefcase there. We, uh, as you mentioned earlier, some people are listening. Yes. To uh, what's going on in here, uh, says very kind to, of you to return it. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm I'm doing a reading uh, to the ISA Congress tonight, uh, and uh, Tintin's the ISA, which is. Oh boy, I was got. You know what? Normally I can read like a normal human being, uh, <laughs> but on this, uh, the, some words really cripple me here. Uh, the International Sigliographical Association. Sigil, Sigilographical Association, yeah. As, sigil- Tintin, as Tintin goes, I don't know if it's sig what. I don't know if it's sigil, sigil- 
It doesn't matter. But let whatever. me tell you what it is, Dave. You know what it is? It's whatever we pronounce it as. It's the study of seals. You might think, yeah. are farf seals? No. Uh, seals like on uh, old-timey letters. Uh, we've also got a little bit of business going on where he's uh, smoking cigarettes. And offers Tintin one. Tintin does not smoke. Good for Tintin. He's Tintin. a boy scout. He will, well, Tintin will drink when offered, mm-hmm. but he will not smoke, and he will not accept money. Uh, and we learn he does ex- not drink to excess, though. He has by mistake. But that was more of a time att- attempt to uh, to um, stretch time out to avoid being killed. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. But we learn a good reason why not to smoke, and that's when you throw your lit cigarette butts down. Yeah. You might have them land on a dog and hurt them. Which uh, is what happens with poor little Snowy. Yes. There is no nothing that can come to the, nor the near the ground that will not land on Snowy. Right. Now, uh, he is showing uh, he's showing Tintin some old-timey seals. A uh, seal of Edward the Confessor. Uh, and many others. And a very unusual seal. Uh, he found it quite by chance in uh, Prague. It's the seal of Ottokar IV, uh, King of Sild- Sildavia. Yeah. That's right. I'd say it. And so we get a little picture of the, of the thing. Uh, everything's behind glass because he smokes like a chimney and would get ashes on it otherwise. Once again, offers a cigarette to Tintin. Tintin, again, not up for it. Throws another uh, cigarette down, almost hits uh, Snowy in his tail one more time. But Snowy, by this point, is hip to this jive (laughs) and jumps out of the way. Yeah. Quite a chain smoker. Yeah. uh, Snowy really has some great reactions in this. Really good doggish reactions. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we the, uh, the 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 fella uh, mentions he's looking for a secretary, uh, taking job applications for one uh, to go on this uh, trip. Uh, Tintin does not bite onto that. You'd think like he would, but he doesn't. And uh, off Tintin goes. He's enjoying goes. his freedom from work. Yeah, he just he just lost his job got, as a boy reporter. It's like I got some savings. <laughs> Apparently, I was being paid so much money. It didn't matter what people offered me to to work at other jobs. So yeah, and I always have enough money I'm, to travel anywhere in yeah, the world at in any my, time. In my pocket or in my sock. I don't know where he kept it, but... So maybe he keeps it in the tuft of hair. Maybe that's what that is. <laughs> that's right. uh, and so off Tintin goes, but the listeners were listening. And uh, this is actually kind of a clever little thing. Yeah. Uh, they're, they've got a uh, camera to take a picture, but it looks like a stopwatch. Yeah. Which would be crazy back in those days. Once again, always makes you wonder about Dick Tracy. It was Dick Tracy being published in some of the magazines in in Europe, which, you know, the American co- comic strips were good good uh, magazine fodder in those days. So I just wonder if he saw those and some of the gadgets that were in there, or if he just thought, you know, that's a cool gadget. Yeah, well, also, necessity being the mother of invest- invention, you need to take a picture. What mm-hmm. can you hide it in? Yeah. I don't know, says the guy at his drawing table looking at his watch. Oh, a watch. And uh, there you go. But and I don't then, know if And he... then you know it's like this. What's the next thing? i got to kill a guy. What's the gun in? I don't know. A pen? It's like, yeah, okay, we're, it's everything around your desk. We get, how about a stapler now that's a phone? We get it. It's all stuff around your desk. But the thing is, is that you almost feel like the camera isn't really necessary for the spy part of it, more for the gag part of it at the end of the page. Maybe. And the gag is? Well, well the gag is that he he takes a picture. He looks like he's setting his watch. He takes a picture of, of Tintin walking down the stairs. And then uh, they quickly develop it. And they discover that he's taken a picture of uh, Tintin's midsection. Yeah. And not his face at all. Which is weird because when the camera clicks, Tintin is at the, on the landing of the stairs. He's actually not partway down the stairs, as you see in the in the picture that's developed. You're right. The sound effect does come in too yeah. early. Yeah. So I don't know if uh, if they uh, if he took several pictures because he he is it is still making like that little uh, sound like the little right sound. There is the there is the lines that look yeah. like there's a sound in yeah. the in the panel where there's no 
uh, effect. And, and and oddly, Tintin notices him doing this. Yeah. And you get some sweat marks coming off of Tintin as if he's reacting to something. Yeah. And yet he isn't. It really feels like the click should be in that panel. Yeah. But though, though he says, that's a funny place to put a watch rate. So he does com- comment on, on it. So and his I don't suspicions know, I are, don't know why that's a funny place to put a watch to fix your watch is at the bottom of a staircase. Why is that funny? I just, just stand. I, I don't know. I guess. Where's the correct place to, yeah, to, I guess <laughs> to, to fix your watch? But it's a it's enough of a reaction that when we see on the next page him oh remembering he left his book yeah. at the uh, at the uh, apartment or flat as they say here because apparently we're using British terms uh, the same sweat beads shoot off him so that's uh, oh. It's a, it's a noticing something yeah. effect, and uh, yeah, it's not really a panic thing so much as a as a exclamation. I'm going to mention lots of stuff about Snowy in this one probably because okay. I really like Snowy's reactions. So uh, Tintin's oh I forgot my book. Tintin's casual with going back. Snowy's annoyed. Snowy doesn't <laughs> like having to go back and go up those stairs again. He's uh, he's a bit annoyed. And but but this point, uh, t- Tintin overhears something. Mm-hmm. I'll throw it over to you. Throw it over to you. Well, one thing I want to point out is that all these characters who are the villains all have magnificent mustaches. <laughs> that's true. Well, or it seems to be anyone who comes from this country, that's how we know that they're from Seldavia, uh, is that they have large, mus- large, luxurious mustaches. I know. It's like the Thompsons should move there. That's right. They'd be kings. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, Tintin goes back up to, to uh, Professor Allenbeck's flat. But before he can get there, or his apartment, uh, Tintin hears the... Uh, some talking, and of course, being a one-time reporter, his his uh, interest is perked, and perked up. And so he look, he listens inside, and he discovers that they're talking about him, that they have his name, and now he's he's curious what's going on. So he decides he's going to follow this one character, right, with a black hat and a luxurious mustache who, now, who leaves this apartment. I've got to ask you a technical question here. Mm-hmm. In that shot where we see, it's a nice shot of Tintin looking out the door and uh, yeah. following the guy. Yeah. What is that little window on the ground that looks like it's a window for a mouse? <laughs> What is that? I don't. I don't know. Yeah, there's sorry, like a, there's a window up top for humans. Yeah, it looks yeah. like there's a tiny window, as if a mouse has opened a coffee shop. I think it's just a window to, for the cellar. Okay, well they should probably get a bigger window because that's that's well, that's just too small. Yeah, because it's not safe for in case of fire. <laughs> in case of fire, the mouse, no will the mouse will get out. The mouse will get You are done for. Yeah. All right. So uh, so he follows to, this uh, fellow to, to the Clow to the Clow Seldavian restaurant, and. Uh, I like that he actually says, the plot thickens. Yes. Sildavian restaurant. Well, because he knows about Sildavia from talking to Professor Allenbeck. So he knows that there's a connection between the seal of King Ottokar and this restaurant. So now he's, he's thinking to himself, hmm, this is strange. You know, when you have two things that are linked together like that, that's very suspicious. Right. And this restaurant's not great because it's empty. Yeah. Or it's just a time of day. Right, but they're very happy to see him and get the business of Tintin. Yeah, he doesn't seem surprised. A customer, he says, where the, the waiter sees him or the, the server sees him and says, a customer. At our front? Yeah. Oh, well, okay, fair enough. So, uh, yeah, gives him a seat. Looks, you know, he seems a little aggressive with Tintin there. Not the friendliest uh, looking face there. Yeah, no, no, no. But And Tintin should be suspicious that he's from Saldavia because he has a luxurious mustache. Yeah. And, and right away, you know, he's asking, what would you like? Uh, Tintin just had a second to look at the menu for crying out loud. This is yes. probably why your re- your restaurant isn't doing well. This is bad service. Don't lean on the table. That's thing one. Don't put your dirty rag on the table. That's thing two. And, uh, you know, you're allowing a dog to eat with him. So I, on the chair that people are going to have to eat at soon. So this restaurant, my Yelp review, two stars so far. <laughs> and I don't even know what they're serving yet. So Tintin wants to go wash his hands. So he says. Mm-hmm. 
because he doesn't actually wash his hands. He sneaks upstairs and starts listening at another door and is uh, noticed by the by the server. I think, he, I think he's probably the restaurant owner. Yeah. It's a one-man operation in this place. And uh, so Tintin's picking up some more information. He finds out that they know who Professor Alambek is and that he's uh, that he's got to get some papers from the embassy to go. And we're, but we don't know where until – because Tintin gets caught listening right. at the door. And then he gets to uh, – yeah, Play the innocent. Mu- yeah, the mustache league is having their meeting. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah, and, I know. But Tintin's a bit of a jerk because Tintin, you know, has his meal. Yeah, uh, and then wants his bill, and he uh, wraps his knife on his wine glass. I think that's probably a, a common thing there. Is it? Yeah. All right, fine. Well, let me just say this also: Tintin's having some wine. That mm-hmm. is not juice. Yeah. That is not a glass of water. Yeah. Tintin's enjoying a little bit of wine. Well, that's fine. I'm just what I meant was he doesn't drink till he's fallen on the ground. He's 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 a. Uh, that's true, and he is done with his he's meal. A moderate, and the wine glass is almost full, so you know he has not made a beast of himself. Yeah. Uh, asks for his bill, gets the bill. It's uh, you know, one point nine eight whatevers. Uh, I guess what what would it be there? Well, I would. Yeah. What would it be if you're in Belgium? Would it be it would be francs, I guess. Francs back then. Yeah. yeah okay. Uh, and uh, there's a 10% service charge. <laughs> there, I like looking at the bill. Uh, the bottom of the bill has a uh, something that says, Danger awaits uh, the one who dares to put his nose in others' affairs. Uh, Sildavian proverb. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, a little weird. That's going to cut into your tip <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, Tintin asks what well, it he means. Well, he doesn't because he uh, already gave himself a tip. That's true. I got a problem with that. So, um, so yeah, Tintin's asking what that's about. Oh, it's just a thing we do. Uh, you know, and uh, but then where's Snowy? Snowy's missing. Mm-hmm. Snowy was sitting just there. Where? Where's Snowy? Yeah. And then, then, but he's he's found out what he was eating. Didn't know. Just ordered off menu real fast. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it turns out it was a dog. He was eating <coughs> a leg of dog. Excuse me. Leg of dog. Yes. Yeah. It's pretty horrific. <laughs> yes. And then and then equally horrific. Snowy's coming out of the kitchen, licking his chops. So we're happy to see Snowy. Yeah. But does Snowy know what he was eating in the kitchen? So I kind of think that that was the uh, payoff for that for that uh, day. Yeah. Was that you eat a dog. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's so many of these payoffs, like the next panels, the payoff is really pretty simple. Yeah. Snowy is revealed as walking into the, the dining room, suspiciously licking his chops. Yeah. Going, hey, fellas, what's up? Also very dog-like still. Uh, the guy goes into the kitchen, sees his kitchen is a disaster I just area. like that because he's, but he's laughing before he goes in saying, ha ha, we shan't see him again in a hurry. <laughs> goes in <laughs> and ooh, uh, lost everything. Uh, hopefully, though, again, that Snowy did not eat any of that dog from earlier. Cause, uh, what dog? Was, he ate, uh, Tintin ate dog, right? No, he's lying. He was lying? Yeah. Why would he lie about that? Because he's trying to just make him uncomfortable so he won't come back again. He's, he knows who, who he is. He knows he's... All right. I thought it. I thought they actually did serve no, dog. No, no, they country. don't serve dog. Okay, fine. You guys, you guys read it. See if you think that they serve dog. Why would you think that? Because he says they serve dog. That's but why. Why would you believe this villainous person? He's trying to trying to intimidate. Because Tintin. other countries serve foods that we do not serve, and I don't know anything about this country. Hmm. Maybe they have a lot of dogs, no. and maybe they. Uh, that's what they eat. It was horse. Okay, fair enough. There is a very large leg of something in the uh, in that kitchen. Anyway, yeah. it's a disaster area right now, and uh, that whole place should be shut down. Also, they're cooking way too many things for a restaurant with nobody in it. Yes, but true. I guess they're serving the mustache league upstairs. There you go. They probably wanted some snacks. So Tintin's walking down the street with a now fattened up, uh, hiccuping Snowy. Some nice shots of him walking. <laughs> Snowy hiccuping again. Yeah. 
and then uh, Tintin looking up uh, Sildavia. It's a state in the Balkan Peninsula in the, let's see, 12th, 12th century. century. Uh, it was conquered uh, by the uh, Bordunians. Bordurians. Bordurians, okay, fair enough. And then a very ringy phone goes off. <laughs> and uh, you, I like I like this scene. I'm just going to read it. Uh, it's Tintin answering the phone. Hello? Yes, it's me. Yes, of course it's me. I. Who are you? What? You'll tell me later? Can you come and see me? What about? Huh? All right. I'll expect you about half past eight. Goodbye. <laughs> so if you ask Tintin to, to see him, he'll uh, let you see him, even if you don't say who it is or what it's about. Meanwhile, Snowy is still hiccuping yeah. from his large meal, uh, though it is only a few minutes later. Yes. So now, so well, we can talk a little bit about Sildavia, I guess. Sure, sure. Because, um, yeah, when Erge started to do the story, he chose, he consciously chose to create a kind of a composite of an Eastern European country rather than use an actual place like Albania or the Kingdom of Yugoslavia or wherever. What he did was he took sort of that entire area and created sort of a country that looked like that area. So Sildavia, a lot of the history, like when you read, later on we'll read a brochure about Sildavia, a lot of the history is borrowed from Pol- Polish history. Yeah. The OW endings are also borrowed from, from Polish history. The dress, and especially the peasant dress, and the mosques and things like that mm-hmm. would be like from the Kingdom of Yugoslavia or or maybe... Um, it's another place there that uh, Montenegro. They look very well researched. Yeah, like the outfits yeah. definitely look well. Like- he, the interesting thing is, is that when they redid the book for color, uh, Edgar Jacobs actually went in and he added a lot. He kind of balkanized it. So, like for instance, the the guards of the castle mm-hmm. in the black and white version were dressed more like beef eaters. And so oh, okay. when uh, Jacobs was doing the coloring, he he took it upon himself to redraw all their uniforms and the costumes of the characters to make them more like that area. And so, because often Hergé, even though he had some interest in these parts and was using some information, he didn't have time to research them as much as he would later on when he had more time between between books. And so he, uh, you know, he would just quickly kind of put together like his idea of what those places were like or find some very quick research. So, for instance, the, corne- the kind of the sequence near the end when or when Tintin is walking towards the king's throne, that was he took that image from the jubilee of king, of the King George, oh, like okay. the British king. So he re, kind of redrew that as Tintin, and so when when Jacobs did it, he redrew everything to make it look more like a Balkan place, and added like background details and things like that. So uh, now, so yeah, we're talking about the mosques. Like you'll see later on, there are like some mosques and things like that, and then some of the architecture, like the castle, the I think it's called uh, Krakow Castle. That sounds about right. Is um, is based like on it's very similar to the kind of Castle Lucy in Czechoslovakia, the Black Pelican of Sildavia, based on Albania's Black Eagle. Okay. Uh, even the name King Ottokar, which came from the medieval kings of of Bohemia. Mm-hmm. So he's borrowing from all these different areas to try to create like this uh, sense of a kind of a generic yet recognizable nation. So so the uh, the royal palace is based on the Charlottenburg Palace in Berlin, and then there's also elements that are similar to Belgium as well. So, like King like King Muscar himself looks an awful lot like King Leopold IV of Belgium, who was a friend of Hergé's, and so or an acquaintance of Hergé's. I don't think anyone could be a friend of a king, but you know what I mean. So yeah. they knew each other, and Hergé was very much a fan of of the king, very much. He was a royalist through and through. So you know he wanted to have this king sort of embody the, 
aspects of King Leopold that he felt, you know, that he represented. So the king looks a lot like him. Nice. Again, good context there, everybody. Yeah, I was I was just reading just when you were mentioning that there was a king, Autocar, that was there was a real king that they actually did discover a scepter of his. Yeah, in nineteen seventy six. Yeah, yeah, in Prague they were. Um, there's a cathedral there. They were doing some archaeological research. They're digging down into the floors, and yeah, they found this scepter that dated from the I think from the thirteenth century. So maybe yeah, the fourteenth century. That's neat. Okay, so uh, Tintin, back to Tintin waiting mm-hmm. and and snowy hiccuping. Uh, <laughs> the uh, the mysterious foreigner uh, is is late, or no, he's not late. He should soon be here. And then the the doorbell rings. Tintin opens the door, and in a cliffhanger, yes, a body was outside, maybe yeah. alive, maybe dead. Who knows? Uh, falls to the ground and smacks poor Snowy in the face. <laughs> You like I Snowy getting hurt, and I don't endorse that. I don't. At it's all. not that I like him getting hurt. It's just funny to me that he always does get hurt. That he just can't seem to be not in the way. Right now, uh, like any dog, they're always under your feet. That's true. Uh, you've got two dogs. You know of what you speak. Mm-hmm. So Tintin looks out in the hall. No one there. Going to go look out the window. Uh, Snowy is very happy that his hiccups are gone. Yes, finally. Now Tintin's trying to open his window, which is, uh, w- and next to the window, on a very shaky stand, is a priceless Ming vase, it looks like. Yeah. I'm sure that vase will be just fine. Let's see what happens as he opens the window. What's kind of interesting about this sequence to me is, is this little bit of business, is why is it there? Why is the vase there? No, why is that thing that he can't open the window, and he tries to open it and smashes the glass? Look, is RJ really planning ahead? For the sequence, or did it, is it something he just threw in there as space filler? It's hard to know exactly what uh, what his reasoning was. Well, you need a delay uh, so that otherwise Tintin would see the people running oh, okay. running out. So I guess we need so. to do something with that. So why not do a, bun- a bunch of physical bit- business? Yeah. And physical business with a Ming vase is always for the best. <laughs> uh, so no one's there. Uh, and it goes back to check on the guy. Uh, gets him to the sofa, and then we are reintroduced to our friends from past uh, adventures, uh, the Thompsons. Yes. So uh, they uh, t- who are saying Tintin said his door would always be open uh, for us. Uh, Tintin slams the door shut, hitting them both in the face. <laughs> it's a good. It's a good bit of business. Yes. You know what the Tom the Thompsons? Okay. Uh, the Thompsons, I think, take a step forward in this story. Yes, they do. And they take a step backwards in this story. They do. In this story, it's the first one where they're friends with Tintin and not just trying to arrest him constantly. Right. Though they would if they if they Maybe. thought they had Maybe. Uh, the case. Uh, but uh, but they... way more, way more, since the end of Black Island, uh, I think that was kind of the beginning of their characters with the airplane sequence. I think Hergé kind of really hit hit the... The nail on the head with that, and kind of, a lot of realized business. he realized he struck gold, and he's not going to stop. So from now on, the, the twins are really going to be slapstick all the way. Okay, but this and this might just be a translation issue, and probably is a translation issue. But uh, one of their running gags is one of them says something, and then the yeah. other one says to be precise, yeah. and then does a little flip on it. But the flip on it tells a bit more truth to what they're saying. It's very very clever. Yeah, and in this case, they just repeat. They just exactly repeat. Yeah, that's they, more. That's more what happened in in the actual French. Yeah, so they he lost didn't do the, the. He didn't do the flip. Yeah, they lost the verbal cleverness that they had earlier. It'll come back. Okay, well, I'm glad to hear that because yeah. in this one I just thought, well, that's I don't know why you're doing I think it. They just couldn't no, think, I think they couldn't think of a joke there. 
uh, but they repeatedly can't think of a joke through the whole story, and they they keep doing it over and over again. So I'm uh, like, well, no, there's what? a couple where they where they do. Let's go through it, yeah, and we'll see. Yeah. So uh, you know, uh, they, oh, what a fine way of welcoming people. Oh, what's all this then? Yes. Uh, a body of sorts uh, takes him to the couch, and uh, and 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 they're actually suspicious of Tintin. You know, I know you're saying they're friends, yeah, but yeah. they noticed that there was uh, evidence of a struggle. Mm-hmm. You know, I think they'd take Tintin in if uh, this guy didn't come too. Yeah. Uh, but he does come too and uh, can't remember who uh, assaulted him. Uh, Tintin claims this is amnesia. There's a little bit of uh, verbal business about uh, what's anemia got to do with it. <laughs> a bit of, bit of a reach, but okay, translator. I'm not sure... You know how that was in French. Yeah. And then again, you know, he uh, can't really believe in all this magnesia. Okay, it's it's fine. I guess, if I get just reading it, I just felt like, who is the translator of this issue? Not the not not the one that was as sharp as uh, the last the last couple. Maybe that's what the jokes. Well, were. Well, what's interesting is actually this is the first book published in English, so in 1958. This was the very first book. It was actually published twice in mm-hmm. English. It was published once in 1951. Uh, for a magazine called The Eagle, which I imagine was a boys' magazine. And so it was published in there. Yeah. Uh, Tintin was Tintin. Snowy was was called Milu, his French, the French version of his name, which actually means snowflake. Okay. Uh, but was translated as Snowy because it can fit into the sp- space that Milu takes. Um, and then the Thompson twi- the which of course in French they're the Dupont, Dupont and Dupont with a D and a T. They uh, became the Thompsons in that, in that translation. And so when, uh, Michael Turner and Leslie Lonsdale Cooper took over translating it in 58 for this version for Methuen. They actually kept that Thompson name. I can be recognizing this person who did that translation had hit gold. So they did. So in their translation, they, they kept the Thompson name, changed name, Snowy's name to Snowy. So this was their first, their first uh, translation. So there may be, they may not have got all the business yet that you see in the other ones. Right. I know you're thinking of, now, it's confusing to us, of course, because we're thinking, well, in the books before this one, the Thompson twins were all full of verbal, f- yeah. all kinds of verbal fun and stuff like that. But don't forget that, like, you know, it wasn't until, like, 1981 that the Blue Lotus was even, or 83, was 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 translated. So there was plenty of time for them to develop the repartee of, of wisecracks oh, by the time gosh. they got to, to do that one. This is one of the things about Tintin, the time loops. The time you know, loops, so you yeah. get a lot of like the art is a certain style, and uh-huh. then the next issue the art takes steps back. Mm-hmm. You have characters referring to future stories. Yeah, you have all these things. You know, a character yeah. has developed in past issues and is less developed in, in present yeah. issues. And so then just the whole and then the screwy order of publication in England. Yeah, where you started with you start with I guess this is the seventh book or the eighth book. You start with the eighth book, and you know, and then you you do a few of the contemporary ones. You go back and forth. Uh, you don't publish ones that are a series or, or you know, are linked together in some way for years apart. You know, it just, it really was a, and makes no sense. Yeah. Uh, you know, someone should do a podcast it. and try yeah. to explain it all. <laughs> I don't envy those guys. I don't want to try it. So, uh, so uh, the uh, Dupont's, the Thompson's, they uh, take the fellow away uh, to make sure, you know, ch- get him checked out. And uh, Tintin uh, looks to his window. He's got to get it repaired. Yeah. And the guy who uh, repairs it looks like he would be on the side of a van for window repair. Yes. Uh, yeah. He's a, I, saying, I like his design a lot. Saying, God bless little boys with slingshots. <laughs> yes, that's right. And what? A, well, this sequence is great, of course, because he has a man come in. I love that the guy is holding the glass. He has the wood 
in his hand to keep the glass from cutting his hand. He has a yes. little wooden holder. He has a variety of sizes, so he doesn't know exactly what window he's going to face. But it, there's probably like a, a few sizes that you see every day. So Absol he, he has an idea what he's going to need. And he needs uh, a size that's much bigger than any of those that are under his arm, as we see in the next panel. And of course, he's wearing a uh, probably wearing like a leather uh, apron, because yeah. otherwise it would get cut by the glass. But a nice suit as well. But a, a nice suit. suit. Of course, everyone wore suits then. Yeah, looking sharp. Everyone wore suits in those days. I remember watching this this uh, old timey footage of three men uh, hammering out chain big like anchor chains for 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 boats like yeah. for you know ocean going vessels. They're just huge chains like the size of a, of a man. And there's these three guys just banging away with hammers, and they're all wearing hats and suit jackets yeah. with ties. I mean, that's strange. Well, you look at it. all the old comedy teams, even you know Lauren Hardy or Three Stooges. Uh, they're terrible at their jobs. They're not by any means high class, yeah. but they're dressed better than anyone you'd see on the street today. Yes, that's true. So the uh, gentleman, uh, thanks Tintin for his business, uh, is on his way. Tintin hopes he won't see him for a good long time. Immediately, someone throws a rock through the window. Uh, Tintin swears like a sailor. Well, here's the thing. I saw that and I thought, it's not swearing. What is it? Is this not verbal? It indicates state of mind. Okay. So it's not him actually speaking. It's just him. It's just showing a reflection of his mind at that moment of well, what here's where i'm making that error then is because the symbols that are in there uh yeah. like the at symbol we would see nowadays in yeah. twitter is there uh and uh you know it's not really an at symbol it's just a spiral you know okay i guess so it's not the at symbol well stars and what have you when you look in in like a modern or you know a, a comic strip from the 50s or what have you yeah and say a sarge and beetle bailey is swearing yeah those are the symbols they use when sarge swears so just, i'm well, used they, they use the top of the typewriter is what they yeah, did that's so right when that came i believe that actually came out of mad magazine okay so it was fair a, enough it was but a as, development, as but, someone who grew up with those kind of comics when yeah. i see those symbols i immediately think yeah. someone's a swearing but when you look at this you can see you know there's a question mark uh, exclamation mark, little little question mark, little exclamation mark. I think it's more just state of mind rather than yeah. than him swearing like a sailor. And I also like to point out that the rock hit Snowy in the bum. Yeah, poor Snowy's bum. <laughs> and um, Snowy has a great great look as well. Yeah, and it's nice in the next. So once panel, again, that would have been a, that would have been the cliffhanger for the week. Yeah, he's not really hurt. He in the next panel, you see him just checking it out. Very curious dog look. Again, great Snowy work in this. Yeah. Uh, Tintin reads the uh, rock. Uh, because back then they had no email, so we had to throw rocks through windows. Uh, for the last time, mind your own business. Yes. You know? For the last time, he thinks, so, that means they must have warned us already. That must have been a warning at the Clow. Of course, they were Sildavians. I got an idea. What if I become the professor's secretary and go with him to Sildavia? We're going to state all of this right now. Okay, good. We got, we got it. We got it. All right, here we go. So, uh, next day, the meeting of the mustache squad... <laughs> Again, I'm really sorry they don't get to meet the Thompsons. They would really all get along and just talk waxing and all the different things that they do. Bad news, Tintin went to see the professor the morning in the morning, and now he's going to go work with him as his secretary. Uh, this actually looks to me like the I'm going to become the professor's secretary and go with him. That seems like that would probably be a, the, the last one, because it's weird to say the same thing one panel after the other. Like, I'm going to become the professor's secretary. Bad news, Tintin just became the professor's secretary. You know, that'd be a strange thing to put in the same strip. Yeah, but it's not much of a not much of a cliffhanger compared to a rock being thrown through the glass. That's true. But I I don't know. You could, you could be right. It does seem strange. But there is a lot of times in in uh, there is a lot of time where Erge feels like he needs to because you know he was not thinking about us. He was thinking about young children reading these. Yep. And even though to Erge, if you want to read Tintin, you have to you have to you have to to reach 
up to Tintin. He's not going to reach down to you. Yeah. But there are times when he'll stop the story for a second and kind of say, okay, this is what's happening. Da 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 da. Just to kind of re sure. reinforce and, all the and things. By the story way, points. kids like to reach up when they read. They don't yeah. like the condescension. Mm-hmm. They will always want to read something that's a little higher than their level. So yeah. Yeah. good on them for that. Now, one thing I like in the next couple of panels is the Thompsons are talking to. Uh, Tintin's landlady, it looks like. Yes, Mrs. Finch. Miss, oh, t- did they mention her name? She, that's her name. It's been mentioned before, yeah. Okay. Uh, and, uh, they're, they're gonna go up to see Tintin, and she's, oh, wait a minute. And like, no, we're the police. We're going up. So she's the only landlady that will maybe try to stop you from going upstairs. <laughs> yes. And they, they push the way through. They're like, nope, we're the cops. Nope, we're going up. Uh, they find a, a parcel. And uh, they open it, which is... The I don't think she's, uh, she's objecting to them going upstairs. I think she's objecting to them taking the parcel themselves when it's addressed to Tintin. Okay. Yeah, that's that's fair. Uh, so, but they open the parcel while they're uh, in Tintin's room, and <laughs> yes. uh, kaboom. Yes. That's a good cliffhanger. That is a good cliffhanger, and you get the cartoon door swelling with smoke uh, coming out, the, out through the gaps. And clearly, the Thompsons are dead. <laughs> then the next uh, next panel, uh, the uh, evil mustachios are listening from across the street. Uh, they hear that same boom. Yes. And uh, there it goes. Very pleased. In Tintin uh, walks, and thank goodness, they're just cartoonishly disheveled. Uh, their outfits are torn. Well, as uh, they explain. Their collars yeah. have burst. Uh, their window is yet again broken. <laughs> this will I don't know if he repaired it from the last time, but that guy is going to be uh, making a lot of money off Tintin this episode. Um. Yeah, well, I mean, the Tintins explained that they heard a fizz, they heard the fuse, so they, they threw away the bomb before it exploded near them. So they were just caught in the, the sort of effects, I mean, the cartoon effects of a bomb. So it's unlikely that if you're near a bomb, your clothes will become tattered rags, but it's more fun, if that's what happens, that your collar And the door will springs, buckle. And yes. the door buckles, and yes. Now, now, what it's strange to me is the fellows who are waiting outside on the street, they couldn't have been facing that window that the bomb was thrown out of, otherwise they would have seen the bomb come out and explode. So they must have been around the corner or some such. Well, they show them around the corner. They're around, they're around a corner, right? But if they're looking at the at either of the windows, oh, okay. you know, they should be able to see the window unless mm-hmm. you know they really they really took a powder a long distance away. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, you know, some people maybe on the street are going to be killed too. But nah, they're all fine. So uh, the mustachios are very uh, smug now. Uh, they can mix with the crowd. And off they walk. Uh, Tintin's annoyed at those uh, cunning scoundrels who yes. wanted to kill him. And uh, he spots them uh, on the corner. Yeah, wait, they're right on the corner. They should have seen the bomb. No, no, out the they window. say, let's get near. We can mix with the crowd. So they start oh, walking. Oh, that's true. They're All walking right. towards that's when enough. Tintin spots them. I stand corrected. Quick downstairs. Uh, the men who did it are there. Uh, getting getting them to run down the stairs. Never a good idea to get the Thompsons to run down anything. They're just going to fall. But they don't. Good for them. Uh, they're in hot pursuit uh, the bad guys uh, get into a car uh, after taking a shot at uh, Tintin and uh, the Thompsons. But what I like is when the Thompsons and Tintin go running out, one of the Thompsons is firing down down the street, which is pretty action, pretty action packed. There, it's that's great. Yeah, I also like this one where where Tintin says to the police officers or detectives, we're not really sure what they are, but they say they're detectives at one point. Uh, Give me a gun. And uh, they do. That is a rank in uh, the English police force, I believe. That's right. It could be. So. It could be many things. Yeah. yeah. So the uh, Tintin, you know, when a boy tells you as a police officer, "Give me a gun," you, you give the kid a gun, right? Yeah. That's that's just common sense. So they do. Uh, off uh, the bad guys drive. Uh, they all get on a motorbike together. Thompson's on the back, holding Snowy. Uh, Tintin on the front. Hold on tight. Off they go, and <laughs> off they go <laughs> yes. to the street 
because the Thompsons can't hold on tight enough. Yeah. So only uh, Tintin is off on his own without knowing that he has lost yeah. his friends and his dog. But he is mo- making good time. And this is such a well-drawn sequence. It's a great action sequence. Yeah, the the motorcycle. Uh, yeah, in the upper right uh, corner uh, on page fourteen, that is a really nice action shot. Yeah. Uh, it's, good it's, angle, and even this the next one down the the long yeah the long panel you see the car and him come rounding the corner and there's good trees yeah good trees and then the angle of the bike you know kind of showing him angling into the curve yeah then the it's car great. jams uh, jams on the brakes uh, the bike smashes against it sending Tintin flying again good uh, good good trash motorcycle yeah and uh, mustachios laughing at uh, that they've uh, shaken him for good yeah and then. The next week we see, <laughs> we open the, or what's happening? And we open the paper and find that Tintin's looking over the hedge, wondering what happened to everybody. Yeah, where are the others? Because he wasn't aware that he had ditched uh, his friends. You think he noticed the la- the less drag on the motorbike, but okay. Yeah, it's not, and also, he's not wearing a helmet or anything. Like, he could have heard them shout yeah. up and getting petted by Tintin. Always nice to see that. Uh, explain that <laughs> what happened. They're taking it in stride as well. Nice, nice guys. Uh, and uh, get in the car and get into a ride together. There you go. Yeah. Yes. So then Tintin returns home once again. That ringing phone, which uh, it is a lot of rings. It must have had a double ring then in the, yeah. in Belgium. Must have been yeah. Ring, it rings ring, five times ring, ring. before he picks it up. And then he well, there's no answer machine, so you know you can set it for three. Uh, he runs, answers the phone, finds out it's a professor. Everything's ready. The seats are booked. They, cause he's been acting as secretary already. He's got seats booked for him for his p- flight and everything. And then he suddenly hears struggling on the other end of the phone. The professor's in trouble. He pulls on his coat, racing down the street. By the way, runs in always the, the best, sh- like one of my favorite shots always, is Tintin running and putting on his coat. Yes. Those are always great shots. <laughs> yeah, b- barreling down the street. Hard to draw that. Yeah, and uh, and Snowy by his side. He's run a while now. Snowy's getting a little tired. Tongue's out. Yeah. Uh, up they go. And uh, he seems to be okay. The professor's just standing there with a shirt, ready to put it into his... Uh, what I like is the shirt has no collar. Because in those days, your collar was separate from your shirt. So. Right, which is why you see with the Thompsons, when they get yeah. blown up, the collars just go cusproing. Yeah, they're, they, would, they were actually... They were a plastic collar. They were cel- cellulite or cellulose? I guess cellulose. Yeah, I don't think cellulite. They wouldn't be cellulite. <laughs> that was not heavy enough to be a collar. No, that's right. Uh, Doesn't so, know what's going on. What are you talking about? Yeah, there's no problem. There's no problem at all. Huh, weird. Strange. So Tintin goes just walking back. Not much of a cliffhanger, Tintin. Next morning, time to get on the plane. The uh, Thompsons are there. No worse for wear for their, you know, getting blown up-ish. Uh, but they, yeah. did, they did get new hats. That's yeah. the important thing. Because that was an interesting part of the last sequence is they weren't wearing hats for the entire chase sequence. They were hatless because their hats were blown up. Unlike, unlike them, who were fine, their hats were destroyed in the blast. Well, now here's, you know, one of those examples I'm talking about where, you know, uh, it was very kind of you to see me off, says Tintin. One of them says, but of course we've come. To be precise, of course. Yeah. There's no joke there. Once again, that's a pretty much a direct translation yeah. of what how Hergé wrote their characters. So Dupont and Dupont did not have that. So, you know, so what's happening here is that Cooper, you know, Michael Turner and Leslie Lancel Cooper had not developed that bit at this point so they're just doing a direct translation right. they're not they're not expanding on you've what... heard it uh, previously but yeah. uh, that past is future future is past yeah we're all in a crazy time travel universe right yeah. now okay so then uh we've set up new hats 
The professor is introduced to the Thompsons. They're very pleased to meet him. They've got they've got their new hats, of course. Yes, they see Tintin off. So very nice though for them to come down and see him off on the on his trip. Oh, they're friends. And they then, really uh, are friends. Yeah. They've had adventures together. Sure. Then the plane takes off and uh, blows off those new bowler hats of the Thompson twins, who go running after them. I know they're not really twins. They goes running after them, and their hats get run over by a shell truck, a pet, a gasoline truck. You know. That's driving away to not fill another airplane full of gas. Now, is that unusual that they actually have the brand name of something that's real on the side of a truck? Because I haven't seen that so far in any Tintin story. Well, I don't know. We probably haven't noticed because we wouldn't be familiar with much of the the names of Belgium in terms of uh, local businesses and things like that. So I mean, Shell is an international company. I guess so. I mean, the way the truck, okay, the lettering on the truck yeah. doesn't look like it's the right perspective exactly. It looks, you know, it's okay. But... Uh, but it kind of looks like it was put on because well, it's English. And no, no, Shell is a was a European okay. company. Yeah, it's based in Holland, I believe. Fair enough, and it's got the logo and everything for Shell. That just feels unusual to me. Like you don't see at any point Coca Cola or anything, you know, on a sign. You don't see anything well, in the background. Wait and see. All right, I will wait and see. I'm saying so far. Yes. Well, but my point would be that we don't know all. Like if Air, if Airshay is adding in. Things that were well known in Belgium, we wouldn't know. We wouldn't okay. be able to recognize. Well, let me throw them. this out there. If anyone out there knows, uh, let us know, because uh, a lot of times we'll not know things. That's in right. fact, most of the time for me. So happy to be <laughs> informed uh, yes. as, as to what's going on. I found that a little bit strange, just seeing an actual brand name of an actual product. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're uh, they're on the flight, uh, and the professor is spotting some uh, sheep down below and saying how uh, pretty they look. And Tintin finds this a little odd, but keeps that to himself. Why does he find it odd? We'll find out soon. Yes. Well, I mean, we saw the professor before who was... Well, he needs his glasses, obviously. But Yeah, and he's got his glasses off right mm-hmm. now. He's cleaning them. So that is a bit odd. Uh, they land they in, land uh, in Frankfurt. Frankfurt. Yeah. yeah. There's a telegram there. And uh, good news, uh, the Sildavian Sil- government has uh, put a special aircraft at our disposal. And, uh, yep, assigned the uh, minister, the air minister. Uh, someone's coming by selling uh, sweets, sandwiches, chocolates, and cigarettes. No interest. No interest in the cigarettes from the guy who really likes to smoke. Yeah. yeah. Uh, a little bit of a double take from Tintin on that. I guess that's what he first notices because he uh, he's not... Uh... I guess he probably didn't notice before, because in those days you could smoke on the plane if you wanted to. The professor could have been chain smoking the whole time, and now he's noticed. Wait, he's not chain smoking. Let me just say that's a very comfortable looking flight. I have flown in the in small planes like that, and nowadays they are not at all that comfortable <laughs> at all. No, there'd be at least two uh, seats per side instead of. Uh, you know, look at all that leg room uh, that Tintin has for his long, luxurious legs. That's true. I was on a plane like like a plane like that, and it was weird. They had two on one side and one one row on the other. It was odd. Yeah. What's interesting is the professor's wearing a deerstalker cap, by the way. I don't know if you noticed that. Oh, no, I didn't notice that. Wait, why do you, see, why do you say it's a deerstalker? Oh, because it's got the flaps that you untie at the top and they can okay, go down over Okay, because it looks ears. in the top panel on page 18 on, on, on the right side. Oh, but it doesn't have the back. It doesn't have the back part of it. You're right. Yeah, it's just a regular hat with flaps. Oh, too bad. Okay, it's just a flap hat. Now, <laughs> flap hat. Now we're getting into something I never liked as a kid, which was a whole lot of text. Like a cartoon story, which then like... Here's yeah. pages of text for you. But so, what's what's interesting though is that how much how much how much work Erge did conceiving this country. Oh, it's a lot of it's a lot of work on Herge's part, and it's yeah. a lot of work on the reader reading it. I don't think it's that bad, actually. Fair enough. Um, I think if you're a kid uh, reading this, though, it might it might just slow you down. But go ahead. 
uh, you can cover these pages. Well, you know, we've already kind of talked about uh, what's what it, I mean, I'm not going to go into the pretend history of Sildavia. I'm more interested in, in the fact that he made it up mostly, like I said, using Polish uh, history. Uh, there's a little bit, but, you know, just the, you know, its connection to, to the Turkish area. So you can, he's just sort of giving you a sense of where it's located. Yeah, it's very you know? impressive. Let me just say for all my complainingness about this, it mm-hmm. is very, it is very impressive. It it feels almost like when I when I came across this, yeah. I felt like how I used to feel as a kid when I was reading something like Prince Valiant. Yeah, and you know you'd have the action scenes of like I'm all on board, and then enormous amounts of text that would just shut me down, and I'd move on. <laughs> yeah, I never. But uh, yeah, there's some interesting things. Like there's a picture of the a view of Nisdrau, once again the OW uh, use in the Vladir Valley, and you can see there's a minaret. So there's a mosque in that little town right that would where the imam would be uh to do the morning prayers or the daily prayers and so yeah and then the guard at the gate once again originally a beef eater style uh uniform and then when jacobs took part in the recoloring part of it he took it upon himself to redraw these the uniforms for these characters so they had they had the it looked more like the area they were from but when you turn the page is one of my favorite pages in the entire book which is uh Hergé's uh, his version of a medieval painting of the Battle of Zilharum, which was a battle between the uh, Sildavians and the Turks. Yeah, it's really that's a really beautiful drawing. Yeah, and yeah, it's a it's a lo- it's a great drawing, and just the fact like the flat, the use of like the, no perspective. So you have like the mountains in the back with that curious medieval. Like you see this in a lot of medieval paintings. There's a sort of curious little kind of scoop to the mountainside. Mm-hmm. And then the the totally flat road that is is looks like it was painted onto it, uh, heading up towards that very typical uh, castle with the minarets on top as well. And yeah, very, very interesting, very well done. I like the people in the water. Yeah, and then what's also interesting is that he, within the the text, he uh, Erge mentions that autocar the name is not related to the autocars of Bohemia, so he knew where he was taking the names from, and he took the time to mention that. Uh, by the way, they're not the same. Yeah. So I know you're thinking that, but they're not. And then we also learn in this, because we kind of have to read this, otherwise we don't know what yeah. what uh, importance the scepter has. So when we read this, this is the first time we learn that King Ottokar's scepter is greatly important to to every king of Soldavia. Mm-hmm. Without the scepter, they cannot rule. And so every year, once a year, on St. Vladimir's Day, there is a parade. They are paraded through town with their scepter, and the crowds chant, Sildavia unite, praise our king's might, the scepter his right. And without that, he has no right to be... Uh, so that's interesting, he has no right to be king. So that's an interesting... It is. I, I, my preference, again, would be to have some character tell you this, yeah. to have a flashback, to have something besides blocks and blocks of text. But the, the picture of the battle is, uh, is a beautiful picture. I've got to give you that. I just say, when I read it as a kid, I found that part of it fascinating. So it's okay. interesting. Different reactions. Yeah, I I also feel the same way about big blocks of text though when I read when I read Kong, but I didn't mind it in there because I feel like Tintin. It's more it has a slower pace to it in some ways than mm-hmm. it's not it's not as breakneck as a regular comic where most of the dialogue is one or two words. It yeah. seems now when you were now how would that uh, have been done in the Petite Ventiam like uh, you know the full well actually the in the original black and white there was no thanks for bringing that up actually in the original black and white there was no giant full page drawing of, of that painting it was just the one page of the brochure or the two pages of the brochure that was the entire oh, okay. All right. yeah that was the entire so yeah that was what you got for that week was a lot of reading <laughs> 
So uh, I like Tintin. Okay, so Tintin's reaction is almost like mine reading that. Yeah. Which is, well, that's all very interesting, but... <laughs> you know, then uh, I must be on my guard. We're back to the story. Yeah. I must be on my guard. Without his, without his glasses, the man can pick out a flock of sheep and the cigarette thing, and he's basically breaking yeah. it down for us. Did you all spot this? Because yeah. this is the situation. Sure. Not the same guy. Looks like he's probably got a fake beard. I'm going to do the old beardy tuggy, yeah. which, by the way, never works in Tintin. If no. you're gonna if you're gonna tug on a guy's beard, that beard is gonna be as real as a mountain. <laughs> and he tries it, tugs it, no no dice. Uh, and so what's going on? Yeah, we've only seen one real fake beard in in all of Tintin, and that was his fake beard in the Black Island. That's right. So um, Tintin's informing Snowy that you know, in rough weather, he's on a plane again. Uh, in rough weather, when the plane bumps around, you fasten yourself into a seat like this. Oh, wait, apparent- you, have you explained that he did? Oh, yes, we talked about the fact that he did the beard pull. Yep. And didn't work out. And they also transferred to a different plane The plane as well. that they talked about earlier, yeah. the special plane. Yeah. yeah. So they're flying in the special plane. Uh, Tintin informs him, you know, listen, you you, you got to pull your seatbelt when things are bumpy. Apparently, you don't have to when they're not. Things are real casual. And, uh, well, it's the same nowadays. It is, but they, they prefer that you wear your seatbelt for the entire flight. Eh. Do you, that's what they tell you. I know. Yeah. You calling them liars? No. Dave's calling all the airplanes liars. I'm not, well, I don't, I'm not calling them liars. It's calling him fussy. Well, let me tell you a problem with uh, putting your seatbelt on like that. Yeah. Uh, if there's a trap door underneath uh, you and uh, the pilot drops you out of the plane to kill you, yeah. you're still stuck in your seat. And that's exactly what happens to Tintin. Well, yeah, I guess that's true. Now, here's the thing about this. Yeah. So the uh, fake professor yes. or we don't know or not, seems very startled that this is going on. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we'll see this again in a little bit, but uh, we don't know he's a fake professor yet, though. He chucked on his beard. Yeah. And it was real. But when you find out, the reaction is a little strange. Yeah, it is. It also makes you think, is my seat also a trap door? And, (laughs) you know, did you have to make sure you were on the right seat? Yeah. You don't want to be on trap door seat. Uh, when you're in the flight. My only the thing I can think of is that this person who has been paid to impersonate Professor Allenbeck wasn't in on this part of this pl- the plan. Right. And here's So he's as surprised as anyone that this boy is being sent to his death with his dog. Oh, okay. Fair enough. So he's dropped out of the plane in his chair. Mm-hmm. Uh, te- uh, this is really being a technical jerk. But uh, so I'm not quite understanding how, because it looks like when you look at Tintin's chair, yeah. uh, it's attached by two two rings. So that's how the the chair is attached. If you look at the top middle panel, the, the it's attached by two rings on the left hand side of the seat. The trap door opens, yeah, and we don't see the rings like have let go or anything. But the it looked like the seat was just loose because that was what I was wondering. Was just like uh, plane seats are bolted to the ground, otherwise the seats would go flying around the plane. But yeah. somehow this works. Regardless, Tintin's falling through the sky. Yes. Uh, so is Snowy. Uh, ho- luckily, there's a parachute. On the back of his seat. Seems a weird thing to, uh, if you're going to murder a guy, to, to give him a Well, parachute. everyone's seat has them. Yeah, but... So you, it would have been suspicious if you got on the plane and yeah. only his didn't have a parachute. Yeah, here's what you do then. You, you mess up the parachute then. Well, you know, you do. empty it or some sure. such. Uh, you give a guy a parachute. So, well, we'll see how well it works for him. Right. So they probably weren't too concerned. This is, yeah. This, yeah, it, this is one of those things where you go like... Okay, I'll give you this, but I prefer when Tintin survives due to uh, being smart and not necessarily just. Doesn't dumb happen luck. very often. It's usually d- dumb luck that saves him. If you think well, about his yeah, most of fair. his 
most of his his really narrow escapes are just pure luck. Right. So Tintin uh, gets the parachute out, uh, opens it, uh, says, mind the jerk when it opens. Uh, Did not mind the jerk enough. Let's go of the parachute. (laughs) Keeps falling to his death. Luckily, the parachute opens. Snowy lands on top of it. Yes. Uh, And uh, some, you know, peasants going by uh, carrying hay and uh, Tintin lands in the hay. Very lucky. Very lucky. And there wasn't a pitchfork inside. Yeah, double lucky. Or a needle. And uh, a happy snowy comes to see, you know, Tintin, and they are reunited. Uh, but uh, the two so this brings up an interesting thing, please, uh, with Tintin, which is the idea of who, what language are they speaking? So when Tintin is talking to people, I, I always assume he's speaking French to everyone he meets. They are all speaking French to each other. Okay. That he's not speaking to them in their language. No, like when he goes to India, he's not speaking to the Maharaja. In but don't you expect that Tintin knows a variety of languages? Why? Why not? Because he's going to all these countries and speaking... Like, you don't expect the Maharaja to change his language for Tintin. Tintin changes the well, language Well, that's more believable Mar- to me that... Well, more, it's more believable to me that they're speaking English to each other. But it's well, let's less with, believable to me that they're speaking French to Tintin each other. Tintin has gone from being this... Okay, here's the thing. Uh, again, I find... Uh, t- to me, Tintin can do anything that a kid thinks that uh, an, you know an older version of himself could do yeah so uh, Tintin can fly a plane Tintin can can drive any car uh, I would see like learning to speak another language does not seem beyond the pale for this kid who's very smart so if he goes to another country Tintin of course knows yeah but then that would mean that the Thompsons also are learning speaking in that language yeah see that doesn't sound quite as believable so the does Thompsons it? aren't the Thompsons are clumsy and they're absent-minded but they're not. Uh, so the when thing. Tintin was in China, he was speaking Chinese to the to the people. I can see that. Yeah, I can. Doesn't see make that. sense to me. Why is that? Because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't would make it make sense sen- that he would know that many languages. Would it make sense to a kid that that uh, Tintin could speak Chinese? No. Oh, I think I so. never. I would never have. Read, I never read those stories. So and it thought makes he was sense that everyone Chinese. in China is speaking French. Yeah, that makes more sense. No, to it you. doesn't. But that's what that's what the stories are are telling us. So it's a weird thing. So when you have a story like this where the peasants are speaking in a language Tintin doesn't understand. Or when we have a case of in like the broken ear, where the where the the natives are speaking in a language that we don't understand, it seems odd because. Do you think it's a class thing? I don't know. I don't. I mean, don't think there's a king that Tintin can't speak to, and I think the only people who have not been he's not been able to understand have been peasants or kind of lower on yeah, the social scale. It could who, be, it's not worth it because they've got nothing to say to him. It, well, not not just that they just wouldn't have the ability to speak French. They had never learned French. Right? I really don't. It seems weird, right? I don't it's see all weird, of China knowing it's a, French. Yeah, yeah, so it's a weird, it's a weird thing in, in the stories. Like, of course, it's of course it's a it's a thing you have to accept because yeah. you cannot have a story where no one understands each other. But it just feels weird when, for one one instance, you have everyone understanding each other, no matter what, you know what country they're in. People can understand Tintin, or Tintin can speak to you know the Oliviera de Figaro, the Portuguese yeah. merchant. He can speak to the the Pasha. He can speak to the Maharaja. He can speak to the South American people in Spanish. You know, everywhere he goes, he can speak whatever language is required. Except in certain cases, when Hergé feels like having the character speak in 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 the patois of the of Belgium. Yeah. You know, because once again, just like with the natives in uh, the Broken Year, what Hergé has done again is taken uh, uh, Bruxellier or this Merolian language. Uh, that was spoken in particular sections of of Brussels, 
uh, he's taken that and, you know, using French syntax and making his own words up. He's he's kind of transformed that language into a new tongue of Soldavian. Yeah, I you see. I, I and think so that's it's an interest. You know, I so say it's a weird... logic logic wise. Again, the reason the reason it is is because the story needs it. That's yeah. the real reason. But the logically to me. Uh, you know, uh, the idea, yeah, the idea that, you know, thousands of people in China learned French, that's weird. Uh, but like, to me, in, in the story, The Blue Lotus, you know, he explains a lot about China thinking, you know, some people think it's like this, but those are ignorant people. I know what China's about. So he's researched China. He cares enough about these countries to know about them when he goes there. He doesn't go, what's well, that, going on? Well, that country. That country. But for the most part, he doesn't come in blind. Like, he knows enough. Yeah. You know, uh, to to be I mean, able the broken ear, he goes there simply uh, in pursuit of the statue. Right, but he's there's not, no way he would be able to learn. He doesn't a, spend six right. months going to. Uh, but take take taking classes. the languages that he knows. If you go with the idea that he's speaking these languages, yeah. are languages that would be important to know for the places that he's going. There's no reason he would need to know this dialect of this small tribe that he's never met before. Yeah, that's unrealistic for him to have learned. Yeah, these peasants, their dialogue. There's no reason he would have learned that in any school or from books. He couldn't have. Which is why he doesn't. But, but he knows he knows the the high high Soldavian. But here's the he thing: he doesn't know low Soldavian. But the problem about that is we've just made up this country. So who knows uh, if that language is taught in books or schools or whatever? Tintin is a well-read fella. Tintin's smarter I think it's a, than you I think and it's me. A curious, I think it's a curious thing, and I don't I don't think you can explain it. I think you can you I can don't think, rationalize it. I don't but. think Tintin can beat up three guys. Three muscly guys well, who come into the prison, either. But he's got, he's got, you know. It, again, sorry to bring up James Bond, but you know, w- w- you know, we parallel with James Bond every so often on this podcast, and say uh, someone does. In you only live twice. Yes, James Bond is uh, going to the Orient. Yeah, and they uh, and he asks, well, James, you should take this phrase book, and it's like, no, I learnt it in my studies. Yeah, and off he goes, and now we assume. James Bond speaks fluent whatever he's going to be. Yeah. So any country James Bond goes to, you could speak a language and James Bond is never going to go, I don't get it. What's he saying? You will always have James Bond understanding the language. But once again, see, that you're, I, I can't go with you there because you, in a James Bond film, for instance, yeah. they'll have him speaking in English and you'll have him speaking in the language. But he will so, always understand the language. So they don't, they don't differentiate. But most people are speaking English all the time. Mm. To him, and the the bit of the the actual language that people in the country speak because it's their language right. that they kind of like is just tiny a bit of a bit of uh, right. you know susan. It's of the mo- it's a movie thing seasoning. of the Germans will always yeah. say three things in German, yeah, and then will immediately speak to English, switch to English in a German accent. Yeah, schnell, was ist das? Well, it's good to see you, other person who's German and now yeah. is speaking in uh, German. All right. Yeah. Anyway, uh, you, the listener, uh, what do you think? <laughs> What's your theory on what Tintin is speaking? Yeah. Uh, but anyway, he is not understanding the peasants. Uh, he is uh, looking for the police. He's got a complaint to make, and they take him to the police. Now, it's never usually a good idea for Tintin to go to the police. You know, Thompson and Thompson are the best police officers that we've met so far in the Tintin world, and even they aren't that great. So... Here we go. Tintin is spilling the beans on what's going on to uh, the chief of police, telling him that there's a conspiracy against King Muscar Twelfth, and that certain people are going to try and steal this scepter from him. And uh, it tells the whole story. Uh, we cut to the end of the story. Uh, the guards outside, well, it's serious. They've been in there for nearly an hour, so now we know how much time they've been talking. Uh, Tintin would like to get a car. 
Uh, we do not have a car, but there is a peasant wagon. Uh, we're going to put you on that. Off you go. One, one interesting thing in the story is the intercutting between what Tintin is doing and what Professor Allenbeck is doing. So we have Tintin talking to the to this police chief. Then we cut to the plane landing in Clow, mm-hmm. or at least circling the airfield. And then we cut we back. We can see Clow written on the ground below, yeah. so they know. Then we cut back to the this situation where, yes, the guards are outside saying they've been in there an hour. So, yeah. So then Tintin decides he's going to leave with his peasant. And they go in, into some remarkably uh, well-drawn, remarkably well-drawn. You know what's interesting, actually, is when you get to uh, Soldavia, the mustaches get smaller. <laughs> I guess it's just something, it's, it makes everyone homesick, so they grow them a lot, they yeah, grow that's them a lot more. Or maybe the air lush. pressure is different. They're maybe they're higher up in the mountains, and so it gets smaller. But those trees are really well drawn. But this so. chief of police, let's say, has given Tintin his word that this is all between the two oh, of them. Yeah, let's yeah. hush, hush. Here you go. Wrong, it looks like. Because <laughs> now the mustache squad is getting a phone call uh, saying, you know, Tintin's uh, on his way. And uh, and as you say, I think we're going to finish the sentence, well drawn with trees. Was that what we are going to say? Well yes. drawn uh, forest? Yes, really well done. Yeah, beautiful very, forest. Very nice and detailed. Here comes the covered wagon with a peasant coming around the corner. Uh, fellas uh, behind a rock with a gun uh, looking like they're going to r- rob him. But uh, nope, it's uh, they're looking for Tintin. But the guy's got a stammer <laughs> and uh, can't get out. What's going on? Yeah. Uh, these are jerks. By the way, here's the thing. If you know someone with a stammer, just give him a little time. Yeah. Let him tell you the thing. Otherwise, you're going to lose Tintin. Yeah, yelling at the guy will not make him not stammer. No, it really it really won't. Uh, and so, you know, with uh, this bit of a mix-up, a uh, car drives by. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're like, okay, now back to telling us about this Tintin fella. <laughs> yeah. And then finally he gets out. That was Tintin in the car. Ya dopes. <laughs> and... Uh, well, he, he leaves out the dope since he, they have rifles trained on him. But, that's uh, true. So uh, now we're going to cut inside the car and meet a character that I've never met before, but you're very familiar with. Yeah, this will be a, re- a recurring character. This is her first appearance, of course. Uh, Bianca Castafiore, the Milanese Nightingale. The only reason I know her is because on the back of this book, I see the Castafiore Emerald and a cover with her picture on it. And you've probably seen the Tintin movie. And, uh, yes, she... Of course, sings the jewel song from the opera Faust by Gounod, and uh, is that is that where it's what it is? Yes. Okay. Well, yeah. I like that you say, of course. Oh, okay. Like, you all know, right? The I mean, everyone clearly here. Didn't everyone grow up listening to Saturday Morning at the Opera, like I did oh, on sure. CBC? No. Oh, it's just me. Uh, you know, maybe you are smarter than Tintin. I'm. I'm sorry about this. <laughs> and I like that all the woodland creatures are, are running. The hedgehog, yeah, the uh, rabbits. They're but running. But where are they? What are they running from? There's no car in view. Oh, they've got much greater hearing than us. I they're guess just so. Fleeing. If you could see it in the distance, it would be a little better. And they're like opera has entered the woods. Yeah. They must. Uh, they must yeah. leave. And Tintin looks at the window and sees that it's uh, got a logo of diamond on it. And he's yes. very lucky those windows are so strong. Yeah. Otherwise, they would shatter. And I mentioned the film, but I'll just mention that that's a little bit in the film as well. You, there's the case that's holding the model of the of the unicorn, and the camera zooms in and has that little safety glass logo there, and that's of course a reference nice. to this. Image. And now your reference with the film, because there's been a couple of films, Tintin films. You mean the, I'm talking about the animated, the most one, recent yeah, animated yeah. one by uh, by Spielberg. Yeah. Okay. Was it Spielberg that directed that? Yes, one? that's right. Very good. So uh, then we uh, cut back to the police uh, police chief. Who ratted, ratted him out, uh, <laughs> furious about all this. Oh, yes. oh, beads of sweat flying off his head. But back to the comedy relief. 
of uh, Tintin in the car uh, <laughs> with her. So uh, yes. how did you like that? Oh, very, very much indeed. Poor little Snowy with his sensitive ears. Yeah, he's... And like, well, I'm going to sing you something they else. Both have, they both have this little dizzy sw- swirl coming off of them. Yeah, and uh, sweat beads. Well, only Tintin has the sweat, which is which is right, because dogs do not sweat. Yeah, Tintin should have his tongue out sweating. <laughs> That's right. Or sorry, uh, t- Snowy. Did I say Tintin should have his tongue out? Yes. I meant Snowy should have his tongue It's easy to get confused. I guess so. The car is stopped. Uh, now they're going to get Tintin, but nope. Uh, it looks like he got out earlier. He'd forgotten something. Uh, so we went back, and we find out, because she was singing, and he couldn't take any of that. Yes. So he took off. Luckily, she just saved his life, probably. So, yeah. But anyway, Dave, I'm going to go, meanwhile, back to Clow. <laughs> yes. Okay. And so we have the professor there, and now we kind of find out what he's going there to do is to examine the archives that are in the treasure house, uh, the National Archives, to continue his investigation of this interesting seal that he found, supposedly. And uh, so, yeah, that's this weird little cut. So we know what's happening, the progress there. And we cut back to Tintin, trying, still trying to make his way to towards Clow. And uh, so he finds some border guards or some guards on the side of the road. And they has his usual luck uh, with his passport. They arrest him. <laughs> And uh, his he gets, papers aren't in order. He gets thrown into jail. One of the nicer jails he's been in. Nice, Tintin gets nice thrown jail. in jail a lot. Normally, it does not get two blankets. Yeah, it's got two blankets. One he can use as a pillow. The only problem is, is uh, in the evening, the uh, police chief listens to uh, Bianca Castafiore, the Milanese Nightingale, still singing the, the Jewel song. Yeah, I like, because they cut to, you see her singing on the radio. She's got the microphone. And I like the, uh, you see one musician in the orchestra pit, yeah. and he is not, he is not buying this. Looking terrified, and I also like that the microphone is bending away from her. Yes. But again, it's one of those nice jails where you can bring your dog. Mm-hmm. Some jails do not allow snowy. Some do. This one do. Yeah, it's like apartments. All right, let's go to the next day. And uh, we see the professor. He's now gotten permission. Uh, to go to the treasure cha- chamber, and he gets escorted uh, there. You see, uh, you see everything uh, on display. It's all very fancy. All the guards were getting the lay of the land. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, this is the uh, monuments monuments room, which adjoins the treasure chamber. Uh, two guards have to watch him while he's going through the papers. Uh, hopes he won't be offended. Not in the least. There we go. Now let's get back to where's uh, where's Tintin at. Well, actually. I just want to point out, like, Please. when you look in this room, when you look at the, the room where the, where the scepter and the crown is kept, and you look at the walls, you can once again see Jacobs at work, uh, adding the extra decorations, stuff like that, that Ergie just did not have time for when he did the original stories to add all that kind of, uh, of background detail. It's, uh, as time went on, he would, you know, he kind of fell in love with that and added more and more of it. But, yeah. but at this point, uh, the story is when you look at the black and white ones, they're really bare. Like, oh, there's not, not a lot of decor in them. Uh, most of this was uh, Jacob's kind of adding his own touch, his, so, his own obsessive it's a gr- Yeah, it's a great, it's it. a great panel. Yeah. So uh, then we get back to the police chief who is saying, uh, yeah, here are your orders. Uh, you know, uh, Tintin's going to be uh, taken away. And uh, when he tries to escape, uh, you know what to do, right? Like, well, what if he doesn't try to get away? <laughs> Don't worry, he will. <laughs> He's not doing that laughing, but we can assume. Uh, back to the prison cell. <laughs> Here's the nice thing about Tintin. He's in uh, prison, makes his bed. Why wouldn't you? Yeah, Why wouldn't you fold up his... up his blanket nice and neat? Yeah. You know, he's a, he's a good guy. You know, it's not a great prison. You look at the floor, it's all cracked and terrible, but Tintin's no slob. No. Uh, gets, a, gets a note slipped to him. 
saying uh, you're going to be taken uh, to Cloud to be shot. You must try to escape on the journey. Pretend to be asleep. The driver, who's a friend, will stage a breakdown and call the other guards away. That will make your moment for you to escape. A friend. And uh, Tintin uh, rolls that up and uh, gets Snowy to eat it. Yes. And uh, it's, a, it's a hard swallow for Snowy. There's a little complaining about that. Well, because Tintin gives him this wad of paper, then hurry up, Snowy. Poor Snowy. Yeah, you think it's easy? Come on, you <laughs> jerk. Yeah, it's hard. it's hard eating paper. You know what? All of these people who are so mean, and they are. Tintin runs into a lot of meanies, a lot of guards, a lot of people wanting to shoot him. Mm-hmm. Very few people uh, want to kill Snowy. Yeah. You know, one, one time they tried to hang him. Yes. And that was weird. And the guy tried to, uh, that guy in the boat tried to kill him in the Congo. And... That's true. But, uh, you know, they let uh, Tintin uh, go to, you know, the next thing with Snowy on his lap. Uh, Tintin fakes being asleep. Yes. Uh, the car breaks Has it break down. Uh, Tintin uh, uses this opportunity to, to run for it. Uh, trips. Uh, well, no, he doesn't trip. He doesn't trip. Well, he, he realizes it's a trap because the guards are are, oh, yeah, are right. gathered, pretending to look at the engine, but they're actually watching him. And the idea is, as soon as he try, starts to try to run away, they will shoot him in the back. Right. So Tintin has to do uh, a, just a desperate dive out of the out of the way of their gunfire, straight down this steep hill, which I had to do one time. I was playing. Uh, um, one you were those, escaping from the police. One of those games, like with a flag, one of those kind of a, okay. The, what, that, capture the flag. Capture the flag. That's right. And uh, I was walking along this path, and I came face to face with someone on the other team. And so, rather than lose my, you know, get captured or whatever, right. I dove to the side and right through a, a hedge, and realized I had just jumped down a hill, and just went head over heels, rolling down this hill, kind of like Tintin does. Yeah. I had no idea where I was going to end up. Fortunately, I was a teenager, so I was okay. I was just made of cartilage at that time. If they did it now, they'd have to airlift me away. But yeah, so the same thing with Tintin. What's interesting about this scene to me is it's very reminiscent of uh, a sequence later on in the Calculus Affair. We'll see a very similar terrain and a similar look to everything with Mm -hmm. a hill. It's kind of interesting. Um, Yeah, so Tintin goes flying down this hill, somersaulting down, whacks into a tree. Uh, Beautiful drawings. And of course, Snowy is also rolling down. And then he clunks right into, lands right on Tintin, right on his head. Yeah, it's a nice So for shot. once, Tintin gets it and not Snowy, which is nice. Well, though, you know, Snowy does get it a little bit in the belly, maybe. <laughs> you don't want to land on that sharp part of Tintin's hair yes. hairline. So then uh, Tintin and Snowy hide from the guards who are coming down the hill to look for them. Uh, once they're gone, they head back up and start walking down a pathway on the road to find the king. Now and we keep our, we're still going back with the back and forth with these two plots. I was going to say, now Tintin knows that he cannot trust anybody. Right. He has to, the only, his only way of warning the king is to warn the king himself. So uh, we're going back to uh, Clow. Yeah. And the professor is asking to photograph some of the documents. Yes. The well, pl- the not, plan is afoot. Yeah, we're getting them or We're just going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So uh, Tintin's on his way there. Majesty says, yes, you can photograph the documents, but only uh, with the royal photographer, uh, you know. Uh, So there we go. Uh, Then Tintin gets to Clow at last, uh, and Snowy just wants to eat. And what is is on the back of the... What has that guy got on his back there? Is that a samovar? Is that that some sort of urn or something that he's carrying around? He's got like a pot. yeah. He's got like a... And I'm wondering if he's like a sells coffee off from his back. I don't know what it would be. Yeah, I have no idea. It what It almost is. looks like a walk around hookah if you had some uh, things kind of. But no, yeah, I wonder what he is. Interesting. But he's got cups. You see, he's got cups uh, in that little pouch in the front. Yeah. So I'm just wondering if it's like some sort of portable samovar that you would yeah, pour maybe. stuff out of. I don't. I don't know. That'd be my bet. Again, it's page 33. It's the lower uh, left hand uh, panel. If yeah. you guys know what it is, please let us know. Yeah. Uh, Tintin's asking for instructions to the palace. 
Uh, it starts to rain. Snowy uh, sees uh, a danger high voltage room with a skull and crossbones and goes, mm, I like a bone. Yes. So we know that he's hungry. Yeah. Uh, they, so that kind of uh, sets up the next gag. They run for a restaurant. Uh, no, they run for shelter. Uh, Snowy asking if it's a restaurant. Nope, just an out, you know, they're hiding, uh, you know, uh, in an outcropping for the history museum. Yeah, only Snowy goes inside. What? Yeah. What happens, Dave? Tell me. Uh, he comes running around with a giant bone the size of what? two of him. What? 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 But how? From a Diplodocus Giganticus. A great, this is a great gag. This is just yeah. a great gag. It's a great visual to see Snowy with a giant bone. Yeah. Uh, you know, but I also like the, it, that's, a, it's okay, that's okay. But Hergé pays it off bigger, though, because then he has Tintin see him with the bone, get mad at him, make him take him back. So then we have Snowy dutifully taking the bone back, which is great, hits a corner and, a, and some sort of a traffic, you know, like, a, like a stop sign post, yeah. flips over, and then loses the bone to a bunch of other dogs. So I think that's a really great. So he yeah. doesn't even get the bone or anything. And then, and then those other dogs get a taste for dinosaur that yeah. they're never going to get again. That's right. So it's then, a nicely drawn dinosaur skeleton as well. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it actually was a real one that was based in a, in a museum uh, in Germany as well. Um, so then, yeah. So then Tintin goes. Uh, he sees the king's palace. He's right. walking towards it. By the way, I like. Uh, let me say one more thing about this. Sure. I like that we're doing the real quick back and forth of like Tintin's on the run. Uh, the plot's going down. Tintin's yeah. on the run. Plot's going down. And they just take a second to do a cute little g- gag with Snowy. Yeah. Breaks it up a bit. Yeah. Now we're refreshed. Let's get back into it. It's a nice balance. Well, it's, it's interesting with, with Hergé that he, of course, he was telling you an adventure story, but nothing was going to stop him from putting a gag into it. I yeah. mean, I think that was for him the whole purpose of of the stories was the was the humor of it, you know, more than it, more than the adventure. Like he will he will stop the adventure for some humor. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. So, yeah, we have Tintin approach the palace, wish to speak to the king, get directed toward the king's... Uh, aide-de-camp. Aide-de-camp, and, or aide-de-camp. And then he, uh, who then, of course, is, we don't know who he's talking to, but Signora, could it be the Melindy's Nightingale? Uh, once again, we cut back to the professor, who is now talking to the pr- photographer, and they're arranging for the their session, taking pictures of some of the treasures in, in the... Uh, the archives, and so then we cut back to Tintin talking to to uh, the aide de camp of of King Muscar, and um, he of course refuses to talk to him. Yeah. Merely tells News him for him for, his, for yeah. the king's ears alone. Yeah, because he's resolved that he will not tell anyone but the king. Yeah. So an eight o'clock appointment is made, and then of course we have this recurring ringleader is phone, <laughs> phoned by this guy. There's no one in high positions who aren't part of this Berberian yeah. plot, and it wasn't near a phone. Yeah. And so then uh, Tintin, that evening, is informed by the aide-de-camp that, yes, the king will talk to him. And so then uh, two goons are there about to uh, attack. But uh, once again, hey, it's a good comic for Snowy. Uh, Snowy spots them in advance yeah. uh, and uh, gives the word. And then Tintin has to fight all of them. Yes, because the guard who's taking him also is in on the plot. Ugh. Is anyone to be trusted in this world? But what's great about this is when the guy goes to to hit Tintin with his with his nightstick, he uh, gets bit on the shin by by Snowy, who then in the next frame is flipping in the air past Tintin with some cloth in his mouth. Yes, I just love that. I love that sequence. Beautifully yeah. done. And then a good showdown between uh, Tintin and the the guy, you know, with his knife. A great uh, sense of movement there. Yeah, and then Tintin, which is weird. Now, 
uh, it's weird the throw that Tintin makes here. It doesn't really look like a hard throw. Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't have him kind of doing like a baseball throw. I don't know exactly how he throws it. Like, his body doesn't look like he's throwing to me. It looks yeah. like he's boasting or walking quickly. Yeah. So... But I like uh, I like Snowy's reaction to the guy being hit in the face. Yeah. <laughs> Just delight. He's so happy. Yeah. Tintin, uh, Snowy enjoys a good scrap. Yeah. You know, for all that he complains, he enjoys the excitement and the adventure, I think. Uh, so uh, Tintin uh, defeats all these fellas, uh, trained uh, goons and guards. Good for I him. I don't know how trained the, the goons were. I would think the guards would be trained. You don't get a nice outfit like that without some training. <laughs> uh, uh, Tintin goes up to the palace, uh, looks in the window, and oh no... Oh no! It's Castafiore again singing, and uh, still singing the jewel song. Right, though these people listening don't seem to mind it as much as normal human beings do. The piano player is looking at uh, at her with a little bit of like, ugh. Well, what's interesting actually is we're not introduced to him here, but that is her accompany accompanist mm-hmm. accompaniment, whatever how you say that word. Yeah, no, I think That's you got it right at least two Igor. of those times. Igor, uh, he will. He is like a. a uh, Constant companion of the uh, of Casafiore, so we ha- don't know that yet, though. But yes, so Tintin uh, first sight of him is, was uh, stepping on some glass to look at this. Falls through the glass. Uh, guards her hear this. Tintin runs in uh, to where the concert is uh, being held. Let me go. Let me go. I must speak to the king. Uh, don't trust the professor, he says. Oh, no, don't listen to this uh, fella. And uh, he's a young anarchist. He's telling the king who managed to uh, get into the palace, sire. And back into jail goes Tintin. Just a second before you go on Please. Too, fa- too fast here. Uh, if you look in the left-hand corner of that bottom uh, panel, yes. you can see uh, Jacobs with the dark hair and Hergé with his blonde hair wearing the green suit. That's them standing, looking on to see uh, Tintin being taken away. Is Hergé in every one of uh, these stories? Not in every one, but uh, at this point, he enjoyed drawing himself into the stories. Um, yeah, can we get a list of all the Hergé appearances when we finally finish all this? <laughs> sure. All right. So uh, he's back in prison, but this prison doesn't have no blankets. So less classy prison. Yeah, and it's funny because it's it's a royal prison. It's the it's not just a small town prison. It's an actual. Yeah. This is real. This is a real big time here. He's but I guess. But this is just where you uh, go to before you get transferred. Uh, He gets transferred to state prison to await trial. Gets in the police van. Uh, A fella crosses the street. uh, I guess against uh, you know uh, how he should cross the street. Uh, Van goes skidding. uh, Big smash. uh, You know. And I guess people died, because because uh, the hospital goes hello. This is uh, Saint Vladimir's Hospital. An accident, casualties in Malta Street. All right, I'll send an ambulance. So those well, uh, the casualty doesn't mean casualty doesn't mean death. It just means people are injured. It depends how you. And s- yeah, that's true. The because uh, fatalities would be uh, dead people. Mm. Casualties is is just injured people. All right, fair enough. And then. Um, yeah, so, I mean, if you look at the state of the, the truck, you can imagine there were some casualties. Now, here's here's one of my small cartoon logic problems. Yeah. So, uh, Tintin is uh, being taken on a stretcher. Yeah. Uh, they're saying, oh, he's definitely suffering from a concussion. Yeah. You know, we better go back for the others. They, they leave. And uh, a very useful thing, concussion, says Tintin, because he was faking it. Come on, Snowy. Now or never. And off they go. But Tintin, two panels earlier, has stars and spinning things coming out of his head. How do you fake those, Tintin? How do you fake the stars? Well, this once again, they indicate this, a state, not not an, they're not f- uh, physically visible to anybody. No, else. no, I realize that. What I'm saying is, you know, they 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 the state that they represent is not true. He, yeah. was, he does not really have a concussion. He's faking being knocked out. So you're having the knocked out symbol above his head that no one can see except us. Yeah. So the panel is lying to us, the reader. Yeah. As well well, no, as the, yeah. It's just showing that. Yeah. It's showing. 
we don't know he's faking it, so we think that he's actually injured. Understood. But yeah. if it's you're, not lying to us. It's, it just is, giving it us is. In, it's just giving us information. Let's say it's this. Sometimes you have this symbol when a character dies, yeah. where you have the little balloon over their head and a skull in it, and yeah. you go, that character's dead. Yeah. If you had someone with the skull over his head, yeah. the character's dead, and the next one go, I faked being dead. Yeah. Then you go, wait, no, you shouldn't have the skull over your head, because that's... <laughs> That's just between you and me, Tintin, this, this relationship. <laughs> I guess so. So anyway, uh, Tintin's uh, on the run, must see the king at all costs. This time, Tintin nothing has is, betrayed you. Yeah, this time nothing is going to stop me uh, speaking to him. Off he goes and gets hit by a car instantly. And of course, that would have been the cliffhanger. Yeah. And There's now no, other, no better cliffhanger on that page now than he's a car got boat the same, to run him down. Yeah, he's got the same stars and uh, swirly things above his head. But I don't even believe this guy anymore. This time, probably for real. Yeah, yeah, but who knows? You cried wolf there, Tintin. I'm so sorry. <laughs> And so, uh, irony is of ironies, it is the king's own car that has struck him. The king is, and the car has suicide doors, which I like. I like those suicide doors. And then, uh, they keep running over, they had to comp his there, and of course, they had to comp his, his, uh, purpose here is to keep Tintin from speaking to the, the king, which Tintin prevents being stopped speaking to the king by socking the aide de comp on the chin and knocking him out. Yeah, giving him a good old knuckle sandwich. And then preventing the king, stopping the king from shooting him. And saying, I'm not a danger to you, king. I'm here to warn you. I think something's going to happen to your scepter. And the king says, what do you mean? Uh, Tintin quickly explains to him what's happening. Then we cut to the professor himself, uh, the, the photographer taking pictures of some of the manuscript pages in the archive. Then we go back to Tintin, exp- you know, explaining what's happening. The aide-de-camp, you know, refuting this. And then... Back and forth, back and forth. Yeah. Got to get there. Things are happening. Got to get there. Things are happening. Yes. Yeah, so Finally, do nice, get there. We get some nice cut-ins in between of the... Yeah. We see the photographer saying, we'll need the flash bulb for this because it's kind of dark in there. And then we finally get to the king and Tintin arriving at the palace at, at the archives. And then the uh, come up to the door. They t- were told that they're inside, that there's, you know, nothing strange has happened. They open the door and they discover that the guards... Professor Allenbeck and the photographer are all unconscious. The door is open to the to the royal treasures, and the scepter is missing. Yep. Cut to the next morning. Dump bump bum. So uh, yeah, the king's asked, scepter hasn't been recovered yet? No, 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 not at all. And uh, then you hear a big loud noise. Who could it be? Well, that's the Thompsons. <laughs> Falling outside. Yeah. So, uh, so they introduce themselves as Mr. Thompson and Mr. Thompson, one with a P, without one without mm-hmm. certified detectives. So uh, well, they don't introduce themselves, but they are introduced as that. So now this makes me feel that they aren't—they aren't from a, any country. They're just but, certified detectives. But no, it's yeah. But when you say that, I mean we've already had them in one in the French books talking to the Surete. Yeah. So we know that they're connected to the police, and they also arrest people, which a private detective cannot arrest someone. So uh, it's a curious bit of the translation, you know, kind of downplaying who they actually are rather than the rather than Hergé. Right. They you are. Know, we already have established that they're the police. They've arrested Tintin for smuggling heroin, yep. for smuggling heroin, yep. and also for smuggling heroin. They've arrested him for yeah, basically smuggling heroin. That's now they could they yeah, they could be uh, you know they could work for whoever whatever government wants them to work for them, and so they represent that government, so they can arrest people for that government if that government allows it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it looks like they've just done a make up where I don't think certified detective 
Yeah, I understand that they're detectives and you can be certified. I get that. But I think when they say certified detective, it's kind of like Sherlock Holmes is a consulting detective. Yeah. Oh, what's that? It's nothing. It doesn't mean anything. They just made it up because we need him to be that for these stories to make any sense. So, yeah, yeah they're just certified detectives. Stop questioning it all. Just move on. We're uh, having yeah. a good time here. Yeah. Why are you ruining all our fun? Anyway, so uh, Tintin lays out the whole mystery for them. And for us. And And for for readers who maybe don't quite understand what's been happening. And by the end of it, uh, they do a nice little pratfall just to remind you of uh, who they are. They do show why you shouldn't wear hobnail boots on a marble surface. Right. I am glad they got hats back, though. That's good. (laughs) And so uh, breaking down how things are in the the treasure chamber, you know, know, one of the five people uh, present uh, was uh, in the plot. He collapsed when uh, smoke was released, but took care to hold a handkerchief to his nose. Uh, when he was sure the others had been put to sleep, got up, opened the glass case, seized the scepter, opened the window, uh, dropped the scepter into the courtyard. That's what uh, Thompson number one thinks. No, nope. yeah. no dice. I'll show you. Yeah. Because, well, they, cause, because um, Tintin's, ob- Tintin's objection to their plan is that they couldn't just throw it to the window because there's guards down below. Right. So they couldn't just drop it from the window because it would be found. Well, then, then maybe they threw so it. Then they say, well, then they threw it. And Tintin says, well, it's at least 100 yards from this window to the ramparts. And there are bars that they would have to get this thing through. So how are they going to throw it? And then Thompson, with perfect confidence, says, I'll show you how. And throws it, hits the bar, and then smacks Thompson, other Thompson, in the face with a stick. Yeah. Where's the stick coming from? Is that just a walking stick? It's just something they have as an example. See, they, they have their example stick. They say, yeah, they say... Uh, he says how, he says to the uh, one of the attendants, he says, could you get me something the same size as a scepter? Yeah, that's true. Okay. Which the man says, certainly. He returns with this stick with the forked end on it, which then Thompson proceeds to ricochet off of the bars into Thompson's eye, uh, giving him a black eye. And then other Thompson says, I'll show you how it's done. Watch this. And they both have black eyes and bent bowler hats. Yep. And no, <laughs> no, no, uh, no, um, solution to what is essentially a locked room mystery which is an interesting little is that the story <laughs> kind of revolves around what's essentially a locked room mystery yeah so it's, it's pretty good mystery so uh then we hear uh that the professor and her uh Zyrlitz, carlitz carlitz okay boy language is weird uh have escaped from state prison they had accomplices accomplices among the warders and uh, they disappeared with the fugitives you know so uh that's where we're at right now Oh yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't. I didn't remember. I guess that there was a Z in there, so I guess it could be Tsarlitz, like you would have the Tsar of Russia. Okay. Sorry. Sorry no, to correct no, you. It's when okay. I was wrong. No, I, I, I accept your apology, and I will uh, see an apology later for something I say. <laughs> All right. So uh, the uh, the uh, Thompsons uh, say, you know, will uh, it may take a week, a month, even a year, but we'll recover your scepter. You got three days. <laughs> you got it. Okay. Yes. Here we go. Uh, and again, they do one of these, you know, we must keep our word to precise, to be precise, we must keep our word. Yeah. Off they go. And, uh, Tintin as well goes off, a little walking around, thinking time, uh, walks by a toy store and, uh, gets a bolt of, uh, lightning thought, uh, as he looks inside, sees a cannon, realizes something, jumps for joy. Yeah, so that's why I think that those balloons indicate state of mind rather than sure. something they say. I don't think he says bolt of lightning or no, I'm sure he eureka doesn't. or something. He says, I'm sure he doesn't go question mark, exclamation part, yeah. a bolt of lightning. I think it just indicates state of mind at that moment. So quick back to the castle, he says, as he's running quick back to the castle. Uh, Although he does shout, eureka, eureka, I've got it. Yes, he does, with a very happy jump. 
Yes. Uh, and uh, and uh, Snowy uh, surprised by all this. So uh, he talks to the guards outside of the castle saying, uh, come with me to the treasure chamber. Come on, quick, quick. And, uh, of course, the guards go, oh, all right, we'll follow that guy. Uh, in they go. Um, and uh, and Tintin, when they walk into the room, is unconscious. Yes, they hear an owl before they enter, and uh, they come into the room to find Tintin laying with those suspicious stars that Ian refuses to believe. Well, he faked them once. <laughs> so, fool me once, shame on Tintin. Yeah. Fool me twice. Anyway. So, he's figured this out. He's uh, showing them the camera and showing how uh, you could load... A, a, he's using the stick yeah. that uh, was uh, thrown at the Thompson's eyes. Uh, to show, like, you load the stick, you load the stick into the camera, and you can fire it, spring-loaded, out the window, which is what happened to the scepter, and it would land in the woods, uh, beyond the river. Well, that looks great. Uh, good, good, uh, you've solved it, Tintin. Uh, so he's gonna go take a look around there. Uh, you'll find a boat down by the bank. Tintin takes the boat, goes off, uh, into the woods, looking around, and he is not alone. No, but uh, I just want to say that some really nice drawings of birch trees here. Right. There are some, yeah, there's some gorgeous backgrounds in, uh, in this yeah. book. Yeah. So uh, Tintin sees, uh, you know, well, there's a guy without a mustache. Is he okay? wonder why he doesn't have a mustache. Anyway, uh, two guys who are looking right now uh, for the scepter, as is Tintin, but these guys are not good guys. Uh, maybe they're different, uh, a, sort of a different group of, a different... Uh, yeah, possibly. Kind of, because uh, I noticed earlier, oh no, he does. Oh, okay, forget what I said. I will. Go on. You know what? I forgive you. There go we on. go. It's all completed. Go ahead. <laughs> that, uh, that'll happen. So some one of those guys uh, finds the scepter. Uh, Tintin tackles him. Yeah. Grabs the scepter. Uh, he's playing that game that Dave played, that dangerous game in the That's woods. Right. He's playing uh, Capture Ca- the Flag. Capture the scepter. Uh, crumbs, they've got me, he says, as the two guys spot him. Oh, yeah, we got you, all right. Now, this is Tintin, by the way, who beat up three guys pretty easily earlier, but these three guys, for some reason... You know. Anyway, uh, so he throws uh, S- uh, Snowy the scepter, uh, and Snowy runs away with it. Now this is Snowy. Good thing he was working out with that giant bone earlier, so he's got good jaw strength. Uh, he's running. Uh, he's uh, trying to make it uh, away, but it gets snagged on a tree, and Snowy ends up in the river. But uh, first, you have to first you have to point out his little hubris, which was, "Here's a river. In we go. Just let them try and catch me." Then the uh, scepter gets caught on the branch. He ends up taking a dump into the water. And the scepter's left. Pride goeth before Snowy's fall. Yes, as usual. But then the uh, villain who's picking up the scepter sees the Thompsons being rowing across the river towards him and also firing guns at him. And so he runs off, warning his his, uh, accomplices. They all run off, get into a car and start driving away. Tintin realizes he's going to have to follow them. He (laughs) takes the king's car, which is nice of the king to lend him his car. Yeah, sure, why not? Goes racing after these, these guys who... I have to say, not well thought out plan. <laughs> they have to stop for gas. Yeah. In the middle of their getaway. That's true. And look at a map. I had to figure out how, how to get 20 miles to the frontier. Uh, and then they see the car coming. Quick. I bet you they didn't pay for their gas. They yeah. jump into the car. After bossing the guy around going, you know, uh, five gallons and make it snappy. Yeah, yeah. Then they don't bother paying for it. So, uh. King's car after them? Actually, they, they abandon the car. True. And go ahead for the hills. And so then Tintin starts following them with... Now, let's just say, these hills are great. These oh, are yeah. beautiful, beautiful rocks. Yeah. Like, there's always, like, one thing in each Tintin story that you go, like, wow, that is particularly good. In the last one, water. This yeah. one, rocks. Yeah. Very good rocks. Well, there was good rocks in the Black Island as well, because know, it was an you, island with... But with if you rocks. were to say, Dave, if you're in the in the Black Black Island, if you were to choose, what was your favorite? The rocks or the yeah, water? The Don't water. even the pretend yeah. that you're a rock man on that. Yeah, yeah, it's water. Okay. So, yeah, Tintin is running up to these hills... 
Uh, and so they start shooting at him. So then he has to sneak around to try to get to them. Yeah, it's good suspense. Like you, like the rocks look so look like they are hard to climb, but you, yeah. they look like there'd be enough spaces to hide. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Tintin uh, gets the slip on him and uh, pulls out the gun. But then discovers that their accomplice is already making his way off with the scepter. So Tintin has to start following him. It gets dark. He decides, well, I can't go any farther forward in the dark. So they decide he'll have to wait for morning light. He falls asleep, wakes up early in the morning, uh, starts to try and walk in the in the dusk, loses his footing, goes tumbling down a hill, lands on some rocks, and then wakes up this fellow with a rock on his head, the guy who stole, has a scepter. And then a great sequence. Oh, it's beautiful. In beautiful the, sequence. In the now, This one, I'm pretty sure, in the black and white version... Uh, so what we have here is that Tintin sees the guy with the scepter. Tintin is, you know, above him on the on the cliff. So he's running down, chasing this guy. This guy is running, is a ways away. He's running down this pathway. We see the Seldavian Bordurian border. And now I believe in, in the original one, this was a cliffhanger. We, we stop in this page. But what was interestingly done when, in the original one, it's not, it doesn't follow it here, is that in the original one, the, some of the chase was done as an inset to the scene. So this section was kind of like an L shape. Oh, okay. With a close-up of Tintin running. And then you see the actual sequence. Uh, in the, you know, it's revealed the next one. So you have sort of a close-up of Tintin running. And then it kind of pulls back to reveal him running, chasing the guy. It gives a really great sense of, of, of pace. And then, yes, just before this guy can... Once again, Hubris, the fellow who wrote with it, Scepter says, The frontier at last. I'm safe. Tintin leaps from the cliff and lands on his back smashing his head down onto a boulder and uh, saves the scepter from being in Borduria. One yard uh, further and uh, he'd have been messed up there. So then... One uh, day you'll break your neck with those acrobatics, says Snowy. Yeah. So then Tintin makes a search of this fellow, finds a wallet, and then finds some finds some messages in the wallet from a mysterious fellow named Musler. His name sounds familiar. Why does now, that do? Yeah, well, Musler... Was an interesting was an interesting composite of, of names because one first one I think is kind of the first two are kind of obvious I think uh, one name being uh, Hitler and their name being Mussolini but it's also uh, kind of references Oswald Mosley the leader of the British Union of Fascists oh okay and also references uh, Anton Musert who was the leader of the of the uh, National Socialist Party of the Netherlands wow that's a really packed name okay. so yeah so it had this kind of weird composite of all these different fascist names that, you know, because also the name of Musler's group, the Iron Guard, is a reference to uh, the fascist group in Romania, who were called the Iron Guard. So there's a lot of different yeah. groups that he's referencing. I mean, the main thing is Germany, obviously. I mean, Hitler, the annexation of, the, of uh, or the Anschluss annexation of, of Austria, was obviously the, the kind of the jumping point for this. So it's a it's a satirical reference to... to uh, Germany's expansionist policies at that time, which, you know, m- maybe war was in the offing. There was a friend of Hergé who was kind of, I wouldn't say he was a doomsayer, but he was a constant, he, he felt very strongly that a Second World War was inevitable. And he kind of suggested this story idea to Hergé. You know, he said, you should do a story about, you know, this, you know, what, what, um, you know, what Hitler's doing. The original, like, in, in Hergé's notebook, his original like what he wrote for the original kind of plot outline was a gang of international anarchists plan to blow up one after another all the great monuments of Europe. Tintin tracks them down to their hideout in the Balkans. So actually very little of that original conception mm. is in the story. A little bit of it will appear in the land of uh, the land of black gold. But uh, this 
you know, for what he originally planned, it didn't really work out that way. You know, instead he kind of went off in a different direction, you know, and so it was kind of a mix of, of his, you know, his friend's idea of this uh, kind of incorporating, I think he was influenced by Ruritania from The Prisoner of Zenda, okay. which was a popular book and a very popular film. It was, it was remade four different times. So, uh, and so, so I think that influenced it as well. There's a book by this Italian guy. He was a fascist at first. He would merge with Mussolini on Rome. His name was Curzio Melaparte. That was the name. His uh, he gave himself that name, his pen name. He was his real name was a, a kind of a German name. His dad was German. His his mom was Italian, and so he was kind of a fascist. But then he kind of he kind of was also a very uh, cynical person, and he kind of felt he kind of saw the reality of of Italian fascism, and he became kind of this commentator on what was happening, and he wrote this great book called Technique of a Coup d'État. In 1932, and basically it outlined how a country could take over another country oh, wow. by capturing, you know, the police station, you know, key army areas, communications. Like once you have those in your command, you can control what people know. You know, like if people can't call, telephone each other, or telegraph to each other, what's happening? There's no way that they'll know. There is no Twitter or Facebook yeah. for people to contact each other. So you know, once you, you want know, to bottleneck those, you know, roads and stuff like that. You, you very quickly could take control of the country. And so he kind of outlined it in that book. And so I doubt, it's possible that Ege wrote it, or read it, but I kind of doubt it. But for sure, other people around him knew about it, and maybe his friend gave him those kind of suggestions when he was suggesting the, the, the book to him. Now that's good context, everybody. <laughs> All right. So, uh, but let's get back to Tintin's stomach. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, have we said what the notes say? Well, so yeah, okay. basically what the notes tell is basically the, this outline of this plan. One, to capture the scepter. Yeah. So that the king would lose his, his power in the country. Then capture key strategic points. And then, you know, and then also have an uh, incident, kind of like what happened in China with, with Japan, with the blowing up of the, of the railway. You have these fake incidents that you, you create in order to uh, make an excuse for you to come in to control the situation right. to protect your citizens who are being assaulted in Saldavia. So the Berdurian, some Berdurian nationals who were living in Saldavia would be attacked, you know, by people dressed as Saldavians, but obviously Berdurians pretending to be Saldavians to create this, 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 uh, excuse for, for the, for what would essentially be the Wehrmacht to march into, to, uh, Saldavia and take control of the country. Okay. So, uh, Tinson's no but, time to lose. We must get back to Clow as fast as we can. Yeah. I like uh, how the scepter is casually placed in his pocket as well of his trench coat. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Tintin gets a dizzy spell, realizing he hasn't eaten anything since yesterday. This is a real snowy type plot to me. It's like, you no, know, normally snowy's the guy, let's get a snack. What's, uh, what's with food? Where, yeah, yeah. You don't often get Tintin stopped by hunger pains. Yeah. Uh, but he see, he's really, really hungry. Uh, there's a house over there. Uh, you know, it can't be helped. Got to stop there. I'm too hungry. Off. Uh, what I like about this sequence, just to interrupt you, sorry. Please. Is uh, well, we have him talking there, and he sees the house in the distance. Then we have this nice, wordless, full, full-length panel of the full-page panel. Beautiful drawing of him crossing the river on the rocks. It's very. Yeah. It's a very rocky area, of course. And then you know we see this little, you know, uh, very Balkan-looking uh, house in the distance, or. And then another wordless scene of him kind of walking up around it. And then suddenly he has to tell, because he suddenly sees these guards. So a Bedurian frontier post. So it's like that pacing, you know, because it kind of slows it down a little bit, gives it some quiet. It's a yeah. very, very uh, gentle kind of 
couple of panels, and then right back into the action. He comes face to face with the Bordurians, his enemies. Uh, fortunately for him, in a case of uh, very, you know, it's interesting. We how much, how little is it? Do we see dogs a lot with with Snowy? The no, Snowy can we, dogs a lot. It's more cats. It feels to me that cats yeah, cause more. Uh, the, the I mean, the only real big scene with Snowy was once he was leaving on an adventure, talking to his dog. That's friends. right. Here I go. It's going to be pretty awesome, guys. See yeah, ya. But we didn't see a lot of dogs uh, no. inside of that. We've seen dogs earlier in this story with the uh, giant bone. Yeah, but here we have a, a guard dog that's tied to the table that goes tearing after. Snowy well, and upsets the table. He's tearing after Snowy because Snowy got his bone. Oh, yeah. That's right. Yep. You see in the previous uh, page, you know, you there's know a bone did... on the ground. That's right. It's not uh, colored white. Yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to see. It's, it's a gray strange. bone. Yeah. But, but meanwhile, when the table flips over because of the dog's actions, bread and wine land in Tintin's hands. Yeah, he nice keeps them and he a runs A nice big a... loaf of, uh, of bread. Unfortunately, uh, the wine gets shot. Looks good. Uh, yeah, but he eats the bread as he runs. He's, he's, he's hungry. Yeah. And, of course, he's being followed. It's probably not a good idea to eat the bread because he's being followed by a dog that can smell him. But but then he throws some pepper down and uh, to uh, make it so the dog can't follow his that scent. That seems like a good idea. Would that work? I think so. Very good. I think so. That's uh, th- Those of you that are on the run from the law, bring some pepper with you. <laughs> Throw the dog off. <laughs> yes. All right. Then, so then uh, Tintin finds an airfield. The next day he finds an airfield. Yeah, that's right. That's, oh, yeah. Two, that's two nights in the open. Uh, yeah. I'm tired out. He only had one loaf of bread. I'm sure he didn't have anything else to eat. Yeah. If I don't find my way out soon, I'll never get back in time. But then he sees one, uh, Bradarian uh, fighter. Yeah. It uh, lowers its undercarriage and uh, when lands. Yeah, when it's raised, la- where it's landing. So then he creeps along, and now in this, in this, in the original uh, version, uh, it was Erje made it really obvious. He had a Heinkel, which is a German military aircraft. And it even said on it, Heinkel, written on <laughs> okay. it like it was a can of anchovies, you know, it says Heinkel. And so he was asked by Casterman to redraw that plane. Because at this point, when this book was being uh, colored, they kind of didn't want to, you know, to be that obvious of it. So he made it into a... But this was for the black and white one. When the black and white one was reissued, he was like, well, let's not make it obvious. Let's not have a Heinkel. Let's make it something a little less obvious. He turned into a Messerschmitt. Okay. Which is even a better, well, yeah. better known military plane. So... It's, well, we can talk about it in a minute. Uh, when we get, we're near the end here, so let's just keep on, keep on, keep on it marching. on. So yeah, Tintin, who can fly? We've established that not super well, but he can fly okay. Yeah, so Tintin can drive anything for a couple of feet and then yeah. smash it. Yeah. So he f- he takes off in the plane and uh, starts, you know, heading towards back towards Seldavia, where unfortunately Seldavia doesn't know that he's flying in this plane. Uh, there, uh, I guess it's is it radar that they're using. Not really sure. They they see him. Or yeah. Turn on the searchlights. Beautiful shot of like uh, the searchlights hitting the plane and then uh, him being fired upon and going down and flying. It's a it's a beautiful page. It's really well uh, done. Yeah, Good with action. the searchlights uh, crossing in the in the sky and lighting yeah. him up. Yeah, that's really nice. Yeah. But well uh, this time for Tintin, uh, his parachute works effectively. And yeah, yeah and when you uh, read comics and everyone's praising like um, uh, Alex Toth. Or, um, oh, I can't remember the name of the other guy who's kind of well-known. Not Joe Kubert. There was another guy who uh, drew for EC Comics, and he was really well-known for his, uh, George Evans, for his uh, airplane fighter sequences. And, yeah, this is a, this is the equal of those, I, I think, for sure. So Tintin, uh, you know, we see, we see him. He didn't crash, though it looked like he died. Uh, the, the, you know, lands in his parachute. Uh, a signpost. That's a stroke of luck. And can I say that Toth, Alex Toth, who is a master, or Alex Toth, who is yeah. a master of 
of chiaroscuro, like, you know, using just black and white in his drawings. Uh, I can't believe that he didn't see this page at some point and it, it, that it didn't um, influence how he decided to draw uh, fighter planes in, in battle and stuff like that. There's a great sequence in, must be in Frontline Combat, one of the Kurtzman uh, EC comics. Uh, there's a great fighter, you know, fighters over uh, like a MiG versus a F-18 or whatever in, um, in uh, Korea. There's a great sequence drawn by Toth. Super spare. Like mm-hmm. super sparely drawn, and uh, I just yeah I feel like he must have seen this. Cool. Maybe I'm projecting. No, maybe. Uh, and if you don't know who Alex Toth is, uh, look him up. It's worth it. Created uh, Space Ghost. There, that's probably what he's most famous for. But he also did other stuff. Yeah. Uh, that's better. Uh, <laughs> all right. So uh, Tintin sees a signpost uh, to Clow, uh, 16 miles. That's five hours walk. A mere trifle, says Snowy. They've been walking for a couple of days. Yeah. These guys. Yeah. There you go. Uh, yes. And and we're gonna recreate a gag from an earlier. Uh, yeah, book that's now. right. I put classic Hergé on a little note there, which cause... is uh, he goes by a stable. Yeah, steps inside to get a ride from a horse. Gets booted out. Gets booted out. It's as if we're back in America. Yep, which is where we saw that gag before. Then he says, "On the whole, I think we'd better go on foot." Why not? A little walk will do us good. And so, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Meanwhile, we cut back to King Muscar, and who is being told that uh, his scepter is missing. That he has very little time. And that he will soon have to abdicate. But no, you will not have to abdicate. Abdicate. Ha ha, Tintin. Uh, I have your scepter with me now. Oh, wait, great snakes. I lost it on the way. <laughs> yes. Ba, 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 da, ba. The end. That's yep, where the that story stops. Yeah, that was the story stops. What and, a strange uh, he got, uh, and then Hitler took over. Wait, no. <laughs> Hold it. Uh, so we we cut back to Snowy on the road, uh, yeah. saying, "Lucky I saw the, I saw the scepter fall out of his pocket." Yeah. But then he spots a bone. Oh. Now look, let me just say this about Snowy on this. Yeah. You might think Snowy's kind of bone happy. Yeah. But this dog, like he didn't eat. He had a bone like yeah. two days ago. Yeah. He's hungry. That's right. And he's still. And really, let's be also be fair. Bones aren't really edible. Dogs yeah. just like to chew on them because it's something to do. They just this, like mushing them up and getting the marrow out of them. Yeah, this is a hungry dog. There's really not a lot of uh, meat on this bone. Right. So uh, Snowy has the choice of either carry the scepter or get a bone. Yeah. Uh, thinks about Tintin being angry with him. He actually him. puts the scepter down and puts the bone in his mouth. Yeah. And then uh, thinks Tintin would scold him. Yes. And uh, yeah, he brings the scepter back. He's not happy about it. You see he him, has he's a angry. vision of an angry Zeus-like uh, Tintin uh, th- raining down thunderbolts on him. Yeah. So he decides, no, I think I'll get the scepter. So then we cut to him with an angry look on his face, disgusted with himself for dragging the scepter for so long. And then he's sitting in a chair in the next sequence. Everyone's, of course, happy and surprised to see him. And and uh, Snowy's listening to himself, bone? Yeah, hoping that Tintin's yeah. going to pull out a bone, but he does not pull out a bone. Uh, he's giving him the whole uh, whole plot here. You know, uh, he found the notes from uh, Mueller. Musler? Uh, Musler, sorry about that. <laughs> Made up names are the hardest names. You're thinking of Mueller, Dr. Mueller from the book before, from the Black. Um, oh, boy, am I ever. Anyway, get everyone arrested. That's a bad guy. Very good, sire. Then a very cool looking uh, rooster to show the passage. Do you think of it's time. cool? You think it's cool looking? I think it's almost kind of uh, too. It's almost too. Uh, I like too well done. It's like too too well colored to be. Oh really? Yeah. I really like the reaction because his Hergé, reaction to the. Uh, oh, explosion. I love that part of it, but I just feel like Hergé, you know, he really liked very simple colors on the stuff that you know, and this is almost like too fancy. Oh, okay. I mean, I'm, I think Jacob's got a bit carried away. I'm gonna say uh, I don't often like a rooster double take, but I think yeah. the rooster does a good double take here. Uh, Tintin wakes up in a glamorous, amazing uh, plush bed. Yeah. Good for him. He's had a lot of prison living up to this point, uh, hearing it and hearing guns. 
but there's a knock on the door. Uh, it's the Thompsons asking, and uh, Tintin asks, what was all that firing about? Uh, but it was just a salute. It's a salute. It's okay. <laughs> for St. Uh, Vladimir's Day. Yeah. Uh, tell him, hurry up and get dressed. So it's a real tricky, uh, it's a tricky cliffhanger. Mm-hmm. That makes you think, oh, something, some action's happening. Oh. And then we get a beautiful carriage ride, uh, a yeah. big parade. Uh, yeah, this is inauguration. So the inauguration here. This is what I was saying. Uh, originally, when Hergé drew this, he based his drawing on the Jubilee of George V, uh, the British king. But the uh, when when Jacob started recoloring it, he decided to make it more like the d- background decor, more like um, you know an, the what he was thought of as like a Balkan, you know, or Czechoslovakian, or what you know th- that kind of region. Right. Those are regional styles. So. He changed it a little bit. But if you also look in, in, in the image, I don't know everyone who they are, but if you look, you can see there, on the le- right-hand side, there's Hergé. Oh, he's back again. Good for Sta- Hergé. Standing beside him is Germaine, his wife. Mm-hmm. Beside her is Paul, Paul Remy, his brother. Standing in front of them is E.P. Jacobs with his uh, always Roman nose. Now, if you go across, you can see Jacques van Melkebeek, who is a friend of... of uh, of Hergé, and as was the first editor of Tintin magazine. Beside her, his wife, Jeanette. And then somewhere else in there is this guy named Marcel Stoberts, who was a painter, not another friend of Hergé. Uh, but I don't know. I don't know him well enough to recognize him. But okay. he's also in the crowd there. Nice. So, yeah. That's a, yeah, it's a very, uh, it's a very uh, packed and beautiful panel. Mm-hmm. Lots so- of detail. Well, lots of detail in both. The carriage... Beautifully decorated, beautifully done. And, as, and we turn, the, as we turn the page, Tintin, looking nervous, yes. is being knighted. And he's knighted on the order of the golden uh, knight of the order of the golden pelican. Hooray! Everyone cheers with Yay. the Thompsons raising their canes high up in the air, snagging a chandelier, bringing it on their heads. Yes, and uh, yeah, I don't know, crushing themselves to death. I guess they're gone now forever. <laughs> well, I just like well, no, I, they they did terrible damage. So they just run away. They run away. That's yeah, true. That's, that's the thing. You could that's th- all I, I originally thought, are they under the chandelier? No, no they no. just took off. They've just run away so that no one can can know who did and that. And in another sad, sad, except uh, for their hats. Yeah, they've lost their hats again. Yeah, those guys go through a lot of hats. Yeah. Okay, time to wrap up all the plot. Here we go. Yeah. So then we learn, uh, we, well, they discover that Professor Allenbeck was indeed a counterfeit Allenbeck, the twin brother of, uh, of, of uh, Hector. And, yeah, so it's strange, though, that they've, I guess they say they found it at Moosler's house. Why Moosler had a house in Saldavia, I don't know, but it's a kind of a weird part of the story. But this, they've got they, to wrap it all up. So they've got to wrap it up it, somehow. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, here's how it all goes. So they have, you know, they find this book that was kept by the professor. And what it basically is sort of a memory book. So it has people that his brother, because he doesn't, obviously isn't very close to his brother being the, being a villain, being the evil twin. So he he has this book in order to know what friends and acquaintances Professor Allenbeck had so right. that he would know to, you know, know them to recognize them, including Tintin. There's a headless picture of Tintin in there. There's a picture of the spy who is, uh, winds up, they find unconscious in Tintin's apartment. And then also a picture of the twins together. And then there's just some general wrap-up. And then uh, Now, the see... spy they found in the apartment, it says liquidated on his pictures. Does that mean uh, he was killed? Yes. Oh, duh. Poor guy. <laughs> so, yeah. But I don't think he was. I think he was just... Uh, they, thought he, they thought they got him, but I think he just ended up with his amnesia. Okay. Fair enough. Let's hope yeah. so. Yeah. He doesn't deserve that. No. All right. Please carry on. And so what we find out is that Professor Allenbeck was uh, cat was kidnapped and held hostage. He's not he hasn't been killed, so he's okay. That's fine. He's just been kept in a house 
in the basement. In the basement. So he's okay. And then, uh, so now Tintin understands why he heard those those shouts in the telephone. What that was was the professor being kidnapped. Yep. And being replaced by his brother. Every I dotted, every T crossed. We're good. Yeah. So now we find out that uh, that uh, well, the Bradurians, of course, uh, make a speech saying that, of course, they had no intention to uh, to um, to attack Seldavia. They'll they'll even withdraw their troops 15 miles from the board, from the frontier so that there's no feeling of threat. And then Tintin, of course, who's received the order of the Black Pelican, the very first non-national Seldavian to receive it, is leaving the country in a, in the company of the Thompsons. And then we have this great water uh, plane being, uh, taking off, and the Thompsons first thinking they're crashing into the water. Yeah, because it's quite, and then Tintin reminding them that it's a water plane, so of course it's going to land in the oh. water. Oh, <laughs> so oh, silly! They so think, oh boy, just to think, it's amazing how absent-minded one can be. Quite absurd. The other agrees. I can still hear you shouting, "We're falling into the sea!" Ha ha ha! They open the door, then step out into the water, and the final frame is them in the water. Uh, As the pilot throws a life preserver, a life preserver them. towards them, and, and their then, hats float away. <laughs> and then there's the coat of arms for Seldavia. What's interesting is that in the uh, once again the black and white version, it was a bit different. The final page, the the sequence of them in the water was actually just a third, was two thirds of the page, and then the coat of arms with with the words fin or you know for end, okay, fin really were there, and that was how the black and white went ended. Well, Tintin pulls a Superman here. And uh, gives us a little wink at the top of that page. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's like looking at us like, hey, you and I know, right? There we go. <laughs> Something Superman used to do a lot in the uh, in the old 50s. So, uh, yeah, all in all, uh, good. Yeah, I like this one uh, quite a bit. Uh, moved along at a good clip. It was the political Packed. satire I did not know about. Yeah. And so did not affect me one way or the other. As yeah. In the past, it has me going, I wish I knew what they were talking about. Didn't. Didn't it get you? And, and nor the Germans, who didn't seem to recognize themselves in the Bordurians. Oh, okay. This book was never censored. The Black Island was censored, and Tintin in America were censored under Nazi occupation. But not this book, strangely enough. Uh, but still, dumb, I think... Dumb Nazis. I think if you think of the time period Hergé was doing this, it was incredibly brave of him to be doing mm. a, a piece very critical of, of German expansionism while Germany was expanding. And particularly, when you... You know, when things must have been really felt like they were ramping up near the end of the run of it, uh, heading into, you know, into the invasion of Poland, it just must have been in the air that, you know, war was inevitable at this point and that everyone knew what was coming. And, uh, yeah, it just seemed that to me, this book and what he started next, which he couldn't complete, uh, were two books very critical of, of the Germans. And even, you know, after, even when the war started and, you know, invasion was imminent, he still carried on with these books critical of, of, of Nazism. And so I say that because, you know, what Hergé did under, under occupation has been criticized by people. And we'll talk about it when we get to that, those points. But I, before we get there, I want to highlight the fact that, you know, um, that in lots of ways, Hergé even when he was at Le Petit Vantiem, was undermining Le Petit Vantiem. You know, his, you know, what started out, you know, his book on, you know, besides the land of the Soviets, I feel like some of the Congo book is almost a parody of of what you would find, you know, the Great White Hunter and stuff like that. It's more of a parody than, even in its grossness, than, than it is like a celebration of hunting and stuff like that to some degree. But by the time you get to like the Blue Lotus and Tintin in America and the Blue Lotus and stuff like that, 
it's more he's being more critical of European uh, culture than he is of than he is being critical of of other countries' culture. So you know, in the Blue Lotus, you know, we hear about how Europeans view Chinese people. Well, I mean, even up to a point, Hergé himself viewed them that way. Yeah. I mean, until the the watershed of meeting Chang and having his whole world changed. You know, and I think we see once from the Blue Lotus on, we see a totally different Hergé, a much more grown-up Hergé. And he kind of leaves the that immature, kind of rowdy Hergé behind. I mean, he still has a rowdy sense of humor. He still has a fun. He still, you know, yeah. obviously has a goof. But he's Snowy's still... Snowy's still getting hit in the butt. Yeah, there's still that element to it. But there's also a more mature part to him. And uh, in these books, you know, from Blue Lotus, The Broken Ear, Black Island, not so much. But this book... Very critical of government, of war, of of uh, you know fascism, all the things that uh, you think that he would be swallowing from this yeah. by the spoonful, working at Le Petit Vingtième or working at Le Vingtième Siècle, you know, being a protege of Father Wallet, who had a picture of Mussolini on his desk, you know, so you know, so fascism was an element of that culture that he was part of, you know, uh, but he seemed to really kind of subversively reject it, and particularly at this point, and. So when we come to the next part of our story of Hergé, we'll talk about that. One, one last thing I was thinking sure, about, sure. Um, the name Sildavia is very like Sylvania from uh, Duck Soup, mm. the two made-up countries of uh, Sylvania and Fredonia in that film. And, and, that when, film and when, when did thir- Duck Soup? 33. Oh, 33, okay. So that could have also been a bit of an influence, just in terms of what he's thinking, oh, I yeah. can't think of, think of a name for, for what can this country be called? Ah, Sildavia. Neat. You don't know. Like, I have yeah. no idea where he got it from. I, he was a movie fan. He might not have been a fan of the Marx Brothers, who were very, very, were more of a talky, you know, and less physical, although yeah. Duxley was a very physical film. Um, but, um, yeah, it's more, so he may not have been a fan, but it's just a kind of an interesting connection, I, th- I thought. And uh, you've said something very intelligent now. I'm going to say something dumb, but that <laughs> I like. is like both this cover and uh, Black Island both have something which I like, which is uh, Tintin's on his way to do something very, very important. Yeah. And Snowy takes a second to look at us. <laughs> yeah. And just go, hey. Yeah. Hey, we're... Uh, I don't think that's dumb at all, because I, I will maintain that, to me, Snowy is our window into Tintin's world. We're not really, we're not really with Tintin. We're with Snowy. In these stories, later on we'll be with Captain Haddock in these stories. Mm-hmm. But right now, Tintin or Snowy is our way of entering Tintin's world. I, I, I get that. I think like when kids fantasize about these stories, you don't fantasize that you're Snowy. I mean, but I understand that as a story I, ta- as a story device, we yeah. yeah, I can see how you're saying that. But when kids think of the adventure and they're playing yeah. uh, these adventures, they're definitely Tintin. They're definitely Tintin beating up yeah. all those guys sure. outside. But I think in terms of our entry into his world, I think that the entry is through through Snowy, who's always talking to us. Mm-hmm. Tintin isn't talking to us, but Snowy is always talking to us. Yeah, his he gives his the, criticisms are, his asides are to he us. He does the Shakespearean asides. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And they're not to Tintin, because Tintin can no longer understand him. They're to us. Yeah, so the big change is there where, yeah, t- Snowy no longer can be understood by Tintin. Tintin is no longer a reporter. Well, no, the the, the, t- the Snowy thing happened before. It's, understood. It's been a while. Yeah. And now, uh, uh, but this is the first one that uh, he's not a reporter. Yeah. Just a, just a regular just, guy. Just a guy doing some stuff. Just a regular Why not? Guy. And but really, it uh, follows adventure where it takes him. And this will, this will to, to a degree for a long time, this will be Hergé's last political satire. Okay. Because big changes are afoot. They're going to change everything in the world all right well uh and uh but uh here's the change for next uh, next week we're going to be reading uh the crab with the golden claws so if you want to pick if you don't have that one already on your uh, bookshelf pick it up go to your local library 
uh, uh, take, it, bookstore? take it out or bookstore or, you know. Because let's face it, you're going to want to read these again. Right. And, and again. And, and clearly your library will be gone in the future. So uh, make sure you buy it. But you want it nearby so Dave, that when you, you feel like reading of this? it. No. Just let them go to the library if they want. Or borrow it from Why? a friend. But when you feel like reading when you think to yourself, now how did Tintin, how did that look when that happened? Da, 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 then you could just go to your bookshelf okay. and grab it. Dave the Capitalist wants you to buy it. I say go to your local library. <laughs> That's, that's again, we're very different. That's why yeah. we've got a balance going on here. I'm more fascist. You're more communist. But this isn't just a two-man show. This is, uh, we want you to be part of it as well. And how uh, you can do that is uh, go to our website, SneakyDragon.com, and yeah. uh, let us know what you think about the show on our message board. Yeah, or ask uh, us questions. Yeah, absolutely. Ask us questions. You can also do that on our Facebook page. Uh, on Twitter, we're at Sneaky underscore Dragon. And our email is SneakyD at SneakyDragon.com. Any of those will get you a response eventually. Yes. We will We will usually at the end of a show go, oh, we forgot to, but we will eventually yeah. uh, get to you. We, yeah. uh, we, we, that is our guarantee. And uh, yeah, if you got any questions, uh, things you think we missed, uh, you know, extra information, uh, please uh, let us know. And also, if you uh, do us a favor, if you if you if you don't mind, if you like the show, uh, please go to iTunes and uh, and rate us on there or review us. That helps other people to find out more about our podcast. And uh, there. And if you don't like it, you could also say that we don't mind. That's if, fine too. If you don't like it, you could also lump it. That's true. Uh, you can lump it, or you can also still rank it either and or either <laughs> yeah anyway we will be back next week uh if you like our voices but want to hear us talking about things that aren't Tintin, we do another podcast called sneaky dragon which makes sense because of all the sneaky why they have the sneaky dragon thing when it's all Tintin? it's because we also do a podcast called sneaky dragon yes that's more personal stories but it's still the two of us yapping so uh you might want to check some of those out they're available wherever you found this one you'll find some of those yep so, uh, as always, I'm Ian Boothby. And I'm David Dedrick. And thank you so much for your kind attention. This has been Totally Tintin. Next time, The Crab with the Golden Claws.